Years ago, I saw a chart of the Ethereum pre-mine or pre-sale, whatever they call it, and it was really striking because it looks like a power function. It's clearly a mathematical function, a graph of a function. And that really is interesting because it suggests that the Ethereum distribution was planned or controlled by an entity that was buying according to some formula. Do you have that chart? Has Have you seen it recently? Because I've, I've lost the link. Well, what is it a chart of? Is it of who was allocated what or when the, the schedule of coins was released? It's time on the x-axis and Ethereum generated by resales on the y-axis. Yeah, it sounds familiar. I mean, uh, I think it, it, caught, it kicked off this trend of kind of like resembling a company where there'd be like dilution. But yeah, I don't, I don't, that doesn't ring a bell. I'm going to try to remember that though. Hopefully a listener can send it to us. But what was interesting about it was it looks very different from other pre-sales. So other altcoin projects that have raised money, their pre-sales are a mess. If you chart time and coins donated or whatever, it's a very random chart, very noisy. But the Ethereum chart was this beautiful function. And to me, that essentially discredits the entire Ethereum project because it says that, sure, any Joe Blow off the street could have sent some Bitcoin to the pre-sale address and gotten some Ethereum. But the vast majority was purchased according to some program. And likely that program was insiders at the Ethereum Foundation because they actually controlled the donation address. So they could recycle Bitcoin through the donation address to get any distribution they wanted. So that's the obvious implication. Exactly. You know, I lived through that whole era and there was a lot of that stuff going on where you'd have ringers, you have rich people, especially with the ICOs that came later. But even before then, there you'd go to someone who was very wealthy. They had like an extra $2 million in, in Bitcoin lying around. You'd say, listen, we're going to sell $5 million in our thing. To get it started, we need you. We'll, we'll ask you to get the first $2 million in. Then we'll give you back the $2 million later. And this was obviously very deceptive and, you know, basically fraud, but this was widespread. Lots of people did this. And then the Ethereum sale, uh, Ethereum was like basically a complete scam in the past. It has since grown into something of ambiguous value and maybe just as a competitor it was valuable. But in the past, there were lots of things. Remember uh, BitShares, NXT, there was quite a lot of stuff and it was all just like fly by night, stuff stapled together at the last minute. And, you know, people had a lot of thought in, in it and they, people were they were very excited about it and they had a lot of there was a lot of technology they were almost real projects people were into them but at the end of the day they were nothing at all they were one one thousandth of the seriousness of bitcoin and ethereum was there was nothing special about ethereum at all until there was one tnabc north american bitcoin conference in miami i think really what, what was different about ethereum was partly just that it had vitalik and he was very young and it had a neat story and it kind of had this vague the turing complete thing kind of had this vague um, going going down the stack or being more general. But all this stuff was nonsense. Ethereum was doing all kinds of like, there was like loans to people. They were going to do work up front and then they would get paid paid back later in ETH after the project launched. So there was like off balance sheet debt or something. And it was like they would get 20%, 25% interest or whatever. For So, so all of it was kind of uh, messed up. Yes. I remember that Gupta fellow who... <laughs> Vinay Gupta. What a character. Yeah, he was funny. I don't know anything about him. 
him, but I just, I saw that leaked video. Master of Nepalese magic. Nepalese magic. Didn't he's a magician? Know? Yes. It's, yeah, you can Google that phrase. Master of Nepalese magic. And also he has defeated Krav Maga instructors 20 years his junior or something. He said that as well, which is like, if you know anything about Krav Maga, you know that's kind of unlikely. <laughs> but that's what he said. <laughs> he looked like he ate well. That's all I'm saying. It didn't strike me as a yeah, killing no, machine. Yeah. Yeah, a Krav Maga instructor could like hand him a cheeseburger and maybe take him out. <laughs> it's too vigorous. But I remember Gupta saying that what he knew of the... Yeah, he said a lot. Of, okay, he said you know what? Things, I, but, I, it doesn't yeah, matter what curious. he says. What did he say? I want to know now. Well, he, was, he said that he was so <laughs> concerned about the behavior of the Ethereum Foundation before the pre-sale that he sold out. I mean, he still took some money, I think. He, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> his take was, this is so obviously a security with insider trading. I think, you know, I think it clearly was. I think, though, I don't think it matters quite a bit, though. There's like a Michael Saylor kind of group that thinks this really matters, like that Ethereum is a security. I think it definitely was. There was a whole era of scam busting where people did the worst things. Because I lived through that, I have a much greater appreciation for why we came up with these laws and regulations at all, even though I still don't really support them. I mean, I really do support the idea of investor sovereignty, that if this is your money and you're, if you own a $20 bill, you should be free to free to throw it in the trash or light it on fire. And if you want to spend it on some stupid project. Also, we tried with the Bitcoin Uncensored era, we tried to stop people from getting scammed. We tried very hard and we mostly didn't succeed. And so it's just a fool and his money are soon parted. That would be my advice to anyone younger who sees financial fraud and there's not much you can do about it, unfortunately. I just read um, Arthur Chancellor's book, The Devil Take the Hindmost, and his view of financial history is that financial markets are mainly tools for speculation and fraud. And that's been their main character for the past 300 years. That sounds like a great book. <laughs> I'll send you the link. It's really a page turner. Yeah, please do. And because we see it's an enduring business model. Right. Because we create these stories that there is some logic to asset valuation and every financial bubble teaches us that there isn't. It was just a narrative to try to explain and simplify an incredibly complex, opaque system that's likely driven by insiders breaking rules and tricking people. Uh, yeah, I don't know how cynical I would go with it, but I do think that it's like, why do certain companies get, why does Tesla get funded, you know? Is it because Elon Musk is a genius and he's willing to work really hard to deliver value for the customer? I mean, that's what you would like to think. It, it's something like that. But also, you just you never really know. I think it's now quite a blend. I mean, I think we should ask an older person who knows a lot more about finance. But I don't know if they would. I don't know if they would tell you because it was the idea of the Straussian reading, right? Which is that you get older and you realize that certain things you can't say out loud. Don't say the quiet part out loud. Exactly right. So I think finance is tough. Well, that's part of my, uh, I have a kind of religious devotion to the idea of the prediction market, which kind of flips that on its head. And it says, we don't ask people for their opinion. We'll just have this market. And as knowledge diffuses through society, as experts learn this and that, they'll place their money in this, in this market. And every single person on earth will be able to look at the market price and they will know what the current state of the affairs is. And they won't have to listen to anyone's BS. And the idea of cheap talk will be kind of thing of the past. This has been an excellent introductory banter, but I want to move prediction markets to our education segment, if you don't mind. We're supposed to be bantering? Oh, yeah. I didn't tell you. Should we tell a joke? Do you, if you want to tell a joke, that would be great. I heard one once that's um, roses are gray, violets are gray, tulips are gray. Everything is gray because I'm a dog. <laughs> 
That could be the name of the episode. You like that? <laughs> wow. I can't believe you haven't hosted a podcast before, Paul. You're <laughs> clearly a natural. <laughs> oh, thank you. You know, be the best at whatever you do. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Sunday, October 2nd. I am your Bitcoin Dad. And for the first time, I have a guest co-host. Allow me to introduce... That was your lead-in. That's me, Paul Stortz, guest co-host, interim provisionally, or du jour. While some would say Paul needs no introduction, I'm going to do it anyway. Paul is famous for his work on DriveChain, DriveChains being a technology to scale Bitcoin and add new features, essentially a form of sidechain technology with a trustless two-way peg. We'll get more into that later. Paul has also worked on prediction markets on Bitcoin. I believe Hivemind is his project. And as you can hear, you might have gathered from our introduction, Paul has been in the Bitcoin space for a long time and observed a lot of history that is rapidly being forgotten. So his point of view is really interesting. <laughs> And he is going to both host the show with me today, and also we're going to talk about drive chains and prediction markets in the education segment. Thanks a lot, Paul. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, today we're going to cover some news, economics, and even a software update. Swan Bitcoin has acquired the company behind Spectre Wallet. Spectre is a wallet we've recommended on the show today. So we'll look at that and see if there are any implications or if we have to change that recommendation. TLDR, no, everything's fine. The Tornado Cash developer Alex per Pertsev. Do you think that looks right, Paul Pertsev? Uh, he is Russian, right? He's one of those Russian hackers, I thought. He is a Tornado Cash developer. You th when you say hacker, do you mean someone who codes or do you mean someone who... No, I mean like uh, everyone in, um, in Russia is very good at computer programming for some reason. Oh, right. They got nothing else to do over there. I guess it's like yeah. it snows and they're just like, I know, I know all just, of these Russian grandmothers who are just coding all day long. Wouldn't be surprised. Tornado Cash developer Alexei has been held for seven weeks without charge in a Dutch jail. And apparently the prosecutors have sold his car. It's a pretty crazy situation. We'll uh, cover that. Yeah, the Dutch. Can you believe that? The Dutch. You're nailing it. I thought they were like the most chill. They're like the Canada of Europe or something where they're like legalizing drugs, legalizing. Just the opposite. They're it's very bipolar. They legalize drugs, but then if you've ever worked with a Dutch person, they're most likely to shout in the office. That's a terrible wow. generalization. I'm sorry to our Dutch <laughs> listeners. The When Taproot site has launched, which tracks Taproot integration in projects and provides education to developers on integrating Taproot. We're going to check that out and give it a signal boost. In economics, I found a blog post that is a modern look at the Trinity Study. The Trinity Study is the theoretical basis for the five movement, financial independence, retire early. And there's some interesting context around that. I actually will be really interested to discuss this with Paul. I also have a link to a really interesting conversation about the implementation of the early 20th century gold standard. It's much more complicated, much less clear than we thought. There's some news that the Apple card has an incredibly high customer default rate, even worse than subprime. I just thought that was funny because Apple has such a great reputation and it turns out the financial products they they put their name on are kind of bad. And then there's a primer on bond investing from Lynn Alden. This is an oldie but a goodie, but it's a good piece of context to think about the current disorder in government bond markets, specifically around the British pound and their government bonds, which are called gilts. In privacy, Ergo BTC contributed to Michael Basil's Pro Privacy magazine and is kind of harsh on Bitcoin privacy, maybe deservedly. Also, he distributes this magazine as a PDF. That seems 
really suspicious to me, right? Like, who opens a suspicious PDF? Do you have a thought on that, Paul? I'll tell you this. Mercha Popescu, I talked to him. Insane, ancient Bitcoiner. He invited me into his lunatic IRC chat room. I said, I wrote this big paper about peer-to-peer Oracle, and there's a PDF, and he refused to open it. So I copied and pasted it into Pastebin. And I had a part where I was talking about something was uh, you buy and sell $1 or something, but I had a footnote. So it was $1 with a footnote with a little one is the superscript. And then at the bottom, I said, it doesn't have to be $1. That's just the unit. It can be any amount of money. But when I pasted it into Pastebin, it looked like it was $11. And he literally said to me, he said, this is, I quote, he said, this is really shitty writing, by the way. Why would you pick $11 for no reason? And I was like, so I, I shed like a tear because I was like, if you had opened the PDF, you would have known that <laughs> I was way ahead of you on that. But that's what happened. <laughs> so not him. He doesn't open a PDF either. Apparently, he doesn't open anything these days because this is the person who supposedly died in a surfing accident at one of the most he might be dead. dangerous surf like beaches in Central America that no one ever surfs at. It's like if you wanted to fake your own death, you would say, what's a good story? Oh, the beach where everyone dies. I went there and then I died. And then his, uh, his weird girlfriend slash live-in BDSM sex slave. sex slave question mark started a blog afterwards. Very well written. So is he writing the blog? Is this real? Is any of this real? Is he laughing at all of us? Is he really dead? Paul, we really need the link no to that knows. blog in the show notes. So if you can... It's somewhere. It's out there. Pete Rizzo, who sent it to me. Shout out to Pete Rizzo. He was like, Mercha Popescu's love interest has started a blog. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And he sent me the link. That's and I was like, awesome. This is literally the most amazing thing I've seen in my life. Paul, since you talked to Pete, there is a bone I want to pick with him. And I'm just wondering if you've ever mentioned it. Why does he publish stuff on Forbes? Forbes is a total dumpster fire. Why does he? It's like he acts like he works for Forbes and goes to their office. No one does. It's all a big scam. I know. And like Forbes, I think I think there's a lot of pay for play with Forbes, right? If you want to place an article, you can just like give them money and then you can be a Forbes correspondent or something. But I think Forbes is, you know, if you're older, than like, if you're like 80 or 90 or like 400 years old, you remember a time when Forbes was very, very respectable. Right. A magazine, it was like the biggest magazine around, like Forbes had the richest people in it. So if you read Forbes, then you're going to be rich like them. You know who else does the Forbes affinity scam is Laura Shin, who wrote The Cryptopians. She always drops yeah, that she's a that. senior editor at <laughs> Forbes. Yeah. She's always been, uh, I've known her for a very long time. I remember when she, in, when Ethereum came out, I was very critical of Ethereum and she was like, she interviewed me for a while. This was like consensus 2015, back when it was at the Marriott Marquis or whenever, or 2016. And she just couldn't believe that I hated Ethereum. And she was like, what about being open-minded? And, and I was telling her all this other stuff, like the side chain's going to come along and just eat all this. And, and she just thought that I was the most unreasonable person. And, but she's, I've known her for a very long time. She's always been very interested in the space. She is, I think I think she's like kind of a improving slowly. Anyone who's been around for so long, I think they 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 just get a little. I'm getting angrier she's, she's and okay, angrier <laughs> the more you describe her because if she's been in since 2015, <laughs> it's a long time. And you listen to her interviews from a month ago, and she has zero technical background, zero interest in challenging anybody on her show. It's just it's crazy that she's been in the space so long. <laughs> and I would say you could attribute it to her sponsors because she's she's sponsored by the worst Possible, crypto yeah. get yield I stuff. think it does happen a lot. This happened with, um, you know, it happened with, uh, who was it? Uh, Epicenter, whatever it was called. Uh, you remember what I was talking about? That was like another well-meaning show and they 
have a million ads. Yeah. An ad for a crypto <laughs> scam, like every five minutes. It was insane. And then the person would come on and the person would say, we're doing, um, we're doing whatever. We're doing uh, land titles on the blockchain. And they would just be like, wow. And there was that German host and she would be like, Amazing. she would always say, so is there a token associated with your project? <laughs> and I'd be like, oh my God. That's very good. That's a good. She um, needed to ask that yeah. because they give her the token <laughs> to go on the show, I guess. Oh yeah. There's a lot of, you know, you never, you never really knew, like, I hate to cast any aspersions on anyone, but you never really knew, like if someone came out and they were suddenly in favor of this, you were like, did they just give them skin in the game? I'm sure it happened a lot. It's unfortunate because it's unfortunate because it's just part of human nature. And it's like, if you own Bitcoin, then it's kind of similar like you were you're pumping your own bag you always feel conflicted and guilty about the whole industry is a giant mess which is why i think um you know it's again it ties into the prediction market thing it ties into the side chain thing so it's all like but there was a lot of conflict of interest that i don't know i don't know the best way of resolving it i mean it seems like in the real world people just they just disclose like we were we were paid this we were but with the crypto world it's very easy to keep that secret so i don't know if that's reliable it's just rewarding the best lie because they'll take the token and just lie. So so I think it's quite a mess. After you say rewarding the best liars, now I have to ask. So have you avoided conflicts of interest or have you embraced it? Well, I try. I think it's tough. It's a tough thing to walk. So a long time ago, before there was any beef with anyone, I worked for Roger Veer, which I thought was fine. And it, everyone loved Roger. People were thought, because I, I was talking to Blockstream about sidechain, sidechains in the past, and they were worried about the regulation of prediction markets was their like concern. And while they were like doing some kind of like diligence or some kind of legal thing, Roger Veer just like called me and they offered me a job to quit where I was working. I was working at in academia. He sort of hired me away. And then they were like someone, a Blockstream co-founder came up to me at Scaling One and they were like, oh, that we're so happy that he was able to do that. And they, everyone was cheering everyone on and everyone was very happy and, and no one hated each other. Everyone loved each other, basically. <laughs> there was none of this. And then stuff over time, the political situation would continue to change. And I would try to think like, do I want to be on one side or do I want to try to be on the contrarian side? Or So the whole thing was is, was quite a, it's quite a long story and it's quite, it's all kinds of trade-offs. Right. So what was your question? I was going to ask a dumb question. Were there many Blockstream co-founders? Yes. Okay. Yeah, there, there were a lot. There were a lot of them, right. I mean, they all wanted, they were sort of, I think it was a partially like an egalitarian type thing, like a kind of like a computer, you know how like open source software is like kind of like half communist in a way, because it's all like, we all just contribute for the greater good. So I think they were all just wanted to be co founder Like, I'll just give you my memory, which may be completely dead wrong. So everyone can make fun of me as they can Google it right after I say this. But I remember at least, so of course we had Adam Back and Greg Maxwell. Then I think uh, Peter Weil and... Uh, um, Matt Corallo, Mark Freidenbach. I don't remember if Jorge Timon was a founder, but he was on, I think he was on the... That was the Demirage guy, right? He was a founder, co-founder. Mark Freidenbach and Jorge Timon were both proponents of these, this weird idea. They did fr Frycoin. Frycoin. Or whatever, and I thought it was a silly idea. I thought it was ridiculous. No offense to them. Do you think they'd talk about it? Like, I'd love to do that interview. It just is so bonkers. Yeah, interview, uh, I would interview Mark Freiden, but I think Jorge Timon, he and I have had our differences and we even had a debate at one point and then I, you know, like, I just think I couldn't believe, and even his, all of his writing and his technical decisions, I just thought were not good at all. <laughs> and so he and I have had our differences, so it'd be a little um, incongruent for me, but Mark Freidenbach has always been a very uh, <laughs> on top of things guy, but I think both, they were both let go of, Fre I think, uh, who else? Uh, Christopher Allen, I think, was also co-founder 
co-founder, Christopher Allen and Mark Freidenbach, and I think Alex Fowler. This is just me from memory, but I remember them all being co-founders and them all being let go. How do you let go a co-founder? Because they weren't like co-founders in the sense of like only one person can own, you know, if one person owns more than 51% of the company, then of course, it's basically, (laughs) you can't get rid of them, but only one person can be in that point of view. So so I think they just kind of wanted the title. You know, when you start a business, it's like titles are cheap. So you just say, well, we'll make you a chief, whatever. Pat Wrangler. Exactly. But uh, yeah, they were all there for a long time. I thought there was a point, and this was a common opinion. So I think Peter Todd also, he he didn't want to work for Blockstream because he thought, I think, I hate to put anything in his mouth, but this was very easy to surmise that he just thought they were too influential and he wanted to be a contrarian and he didn't want to be taking the money. And uh, even though I I think he probably took consulting money sometimes from them, but I think he didn't really, and as did Luke Dash Jr., but they were never like, they didn't want to be plugged in. They wanted to try to stay independent and which I respected. And I also tried to do that, but it leads to a lot of chaos. (laughs) Yeah. Peter's really been contrarian. I don't think I can appreciate the sort of technical degree of his contrarianness, but I read his article on tail emission. Yeah. I thought that was one of his worst things ever. I mean, I've written about that and I spoke about it on really lazy. It doesn't really make any sense. Uh, Yes. He how do you know how many coins are lost? I've just precisely, I mean, I discussed this uh, quite a bit on uh, Baltic Honey Badger and some other things, but the short version is that there's an element of, I don't want to use the phrase dishonesty because I, I certainly don't think he's a dishonest person, but there's a, there's a way of describing arguments where his heart was really on a second argument, which is at the end of his post, which is where he says, well, it probably won't matter because the price of Bitcoin goes up and down so much, 2% wouldn't matter. So his heart was really on that, but he wrote this article with this title as if to say inflation doesn't matter. The other thing, it's premised on coins always being lost, dubious premise. It's also, there's an issue where there's no inflation in the steady state in his thing. So eventually, so so a very easy way of decoding his giant piece, which is, I think, a kind of a confusing piece, is you just say, imagine zero coins are, are ever lost, because the math still checks out. All it means is that eventually there'll be an infinite number of coins issued, and then the finite amount of coins, whatever it is, like 100 coins per block, that will be effectively 0% of the unlimited total. So at time equals infinity, then we'll be releasing it. But okay, but let me finish though, which is to say, of course, there was, there's no inflation then, but in order to get to that point, there would have been enormous inflation. And the the argument also contradicts itself in the end, because it says in the future, there will be, it'll be 0%, uh, but that will not be enough. To, not only will that not be enough to inconvenience people, but since there'll be no inflation rate, but it will also be not enough to cover pay for security. So I thought the whole thing was just kind of silly, but I thought it was a very very culturally interesting because it showed how willing the technical community was to talk about something that would have been unthinkable and completely taboo before. Uh, now it's considered sophisticated and kind of interesting. Well, it seems like a pretty dumb subject. So everyone feels emboldened to weigh in. Because the stakes are actually very low. Yeah, because it will never happen. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's very perceptive of you. I think that's right. Well, that was a great digression. We're still describing what we're about to talk about. So I was also going to mention Michael Basil's DIY guide to credit freezes. This is for our American listeners, but basically if you don't have a credit freeze in place and you live in the United States and have a social security number, then you are in trouble. So actually, Paul, do you have a credit freeze in place? Actually, don't answer that, but you should. Okay, I'll get on that. I think I have, uh, I go to uh, whatever, creditkarma.com. You can follow this guide after the show. All right, will do. And then we have Bitcoin education. I put some things in here, but I think we're just going to talk about drive chain and prediction markets and whatever you want. So let's have, let's do 
that. And then we'll have some feedback and boosts. And Paul will actually read some boosts. I mean, if he's willing, if you're willing. Okay. What is what is a boost? A boostergram. It's a lightning message, a lightning transaction with a message. Oh, a bo- okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know what you mean now. <laughs> Sorry about that. Great. Let's do it. Let's jump in. Paul, do you follow company news, software project news? Were you aware of Spectre Wallet before Swan acquired them? Not really. No. Sorry to say. There's a lot of wallets out there, you know, and I, you know, I got my wallet situation set up like long ago and I never changed it, which, you know. Well, I mean, if you're thinking about upgrading, I think Spectre is a good option. Spectre is a self-hosted web wallet. So you'd install Spectre onto your Bitcoin node or onto a machine that could talk to your Bitcoin node. And Spectre uses the Bitcoin D wallet backend. The advantage of Spectre is that one, it's very private because it only works with your own node. And two, it does multi-sig so well. It just is so easy to add devices to do different types of multi-sig. And so right now, the current thinking is that best practice for holding one or more Bitcoin is to put them into a multi-sig wallet. The other thing is that Spectre has very good backup systems. So it's very easy to recover from a backup of a Spectre wallet. And there are guides like the 10x security guide by Michael Flaxman that use Spectre wallet that I think are really good. You might even say best practice. Yes, it may indeed. I think wallets are, you know, I'm not sure what to do about the whole wallet situation because I want everyone to really understand what they're doing. So we want it to be user friendly, but we want it to sort of explain itself. But we also want a lot of people will go custodial, which I think is terrible. What's a wallet that you think is interesting or good or that you like? What I did a long, a long ago, I set up the, with the Electrum air gapped machine thing and I have, uh, you know, this is what I recommend is that you have the air gapped Electrum and you have watching only wallet on your internet connected computer. And then you just communicate with QR codes. I think that is. You've literally built your own hardware wallet out of computers, Paul. You should because, um, well, here's the thing. Uh, there's quite a controversy over this sometimes, but the a, a hardware wallet, really all the wallets are software wallets and a hardware wallet is just a software wallet with DRM, basically. It will only play on the one device. And you're also advertising to the whole world. This happened with, uh, wasn't it Ledger? I don't want to confuse them, but this happens where you get a thing. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold issue on. Where you're outing yourself as a Bitcoiner, whereas if you just buy an old laptop with cash or if you find one somewhere, then you no one necessarily knows that it is a Bitcoin wallet. So I agree with you. And yet it's a multi-purpose general computer. So there's many trade-offs. So I think people should people should experiment and do whatever works with them for them. But I, I do think it's not the worst thing. Once you set up your, I think there's a lot of lock-in. So if you find something that works for you, I would stick to that. I would avoid ever updating the hardware or the software once you get something that works for you, which is a very unusual advice. But there's a lot of different opinions about that. I think you've got to protect your own sovereignty and it's too much to learn. There's too much of a risk. There's the internet. So, But I think everyone, people should explore with a lot of different things. Throw $20, $5 around in different wallets and see see what makes sense to you. And that is the point of the article. Swan Bitcoin is a non-custodial Bitcoin on-ramp. They push their clients towards self-custody and Spectre has had trouble monetizing. I mean, I think a lot of good products just don't make sense as businesses. And so Swan has sort of acquired them and should fund development, which is great because Spectre was adding liquid 
support in a release after I set up my Spectre wallet. And I think Liquid's kind of interesting, but also there are three people who use it and I'm one of them. So adding Liquid to Spectre, I hope they got some money from Blockstream for that, right? Well, yeah, you can look at the, the Block Explorer for Liquid and see how many people are using it. And uh, I've commented on that quite a bit, including in, you had in the show notes, the uh, Jeremy Rubin's weird version of Drive Chain, where I had a whole little interview with that already, where we, Jeremy Rubin and I talked about that. Oh, wait, where is, was that interview? Uh, um, um, merch, that guy. Um, Chain Code? Chain Code podcast? It was on a Twitter space. Oh, okay. so now I don't want to say the wrong thing in case. <laughs> I just miss all the stuff on Twitter because I have a job, so I'm not on Twitter, really. Yeah, Twitter is not good for mental health either, so people should avoid it. And I'm always on it, though. Outed yourself. Tornado Cash developer Alexi Pertsev still being held for seven weeks without charge. And Dutch authorities are selling his car. So I bought the shirt. Did you buy the shirt? You can buy the Tornado Cash shirt. Will it help his legal defense? I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, they say it would, but does it really? You never know. So that's kind of, it is unfortunate. This does affect everyone in a, the whole community, even though it is, you know, it's not. Bitcoin. Right. But the idea that they can uh, just arrest someone for writing open source code does seem excessive. <laughs> it does seem like an overreach of government power. <laughs> I was, I'm pretty surprised because we generally think of European Union as sort of equivalent to the US in terms of rule of law and property rights. And we know that rule of law is often very subjective, but seven weeks without a charge and they appealed to have Alexei released on bail and no one in the courtroom was able to understand any of the technical arguments for why he was just exercising free speech. And then they auction off his car. It just seems Kafkaesque. And I'm wondering if someone like you who actually develops code and your name and is out there, does this make you think like, man, should I have done a Zcash sidechain first? Maybe I should have done something less privacy related. Yeah, I totally agree. No, in particular, like what you were saying, where no one understands the technical arguments, like there was this book, Flash Boys, that you may have heard of or read. Paul, I'm ha I'm happily married. I'm not into that kind of thing. No judgments. <laughs> <laughs> No, it was about, uh, I don't remember exactly. It was about like high frequency trading or something, but the guy was arrested. He didn't even do anything. And the people were like in court, they like held up a hard drive for the jury. And they were like, this is where he cleared his bash history. Or they said something like, and you're just like, oh my God, like the premise that you can get a fair trial when no one in the legal system or the jury, none of those people like actually understand like what is going on is not true. I mean, you can't. So that that is, in general, that is concerning. It's like they could just come at any time and they could just say, this guy's, you know, a hacker. We found a Bitcoin node in his house. So he's been assisting North Korean hackers and the dark webs. Your only defense is to be able to convince the jury uh, and the jury may be simply ignorant of these matters, you know, and what can you do? So I am worried in general. I don't know if this would work in the U.S. though, because the U.S. is very, we got the First and Second Amendment are pretty solid in the U.S where you would have a free speech you would say you know you could you would write it on a shirt and you would say anyone could have done this and it's the computer that actually performs the operations and anyone could tell the computer to do this and it's no different than putting a bunch of gears into a clock and then the clock was used in a crime to detonate a bomb so are we going to arrest all the clockmakers so i don't know to the extent the extent to which he was uh, indispensable right to the crime like of money laundering or whatever i would think you would want to argue that that the code was so easy to write that anyone could have written it. And I think that would that might work in the United States, but I'm certainly no legal expert. It's a sad thought that, uh, you know, anyone who tries to do something, I mean, I was 
tweeting about Ross Albright earlier or last night or whatever. And uh, I was, uh, he reminds me of Alan Turing, where, you know, someone is a little different. They have a different way of doing things. They are uh, a war hero and everything. They invent the computer. They invent the whole field of cryptography upon which modern life relies. But it's just we have these things that we consider to be crimes today. I don't think people in the future will look back on us very kindly. I think they'll just be like, what were those people doing? Like, how weird was that? Sure. And with Turing, it's especially disturbing because he was persecuted basically because homophobia was so rampant and consensus. It was consensus to be incredibly homophobic. And it's taken for granted. Yeah, he called the police for help because someone broke into his house. He told the police something and that they, they used that to like arrest him. It's a very messed up story. After he basically saved, historians estimate like, you know, in the millions of British lives from... Right, but no one could understand what he did because it was too high tech. So that's how it goes. Well, that's how I always make this joke as well, which is this is the first and most important lesson in philosophy, which is the death of Socrates. That Socrates, he had a different way of doing things. He taught critical thinking to children. He questioned things instead of just repeating what had been taught by the tribe or the village, which is how human society had been run forever. The whole idea of philosophy is can we improve the knowledge? And since every improvement is a change, it's changing things. And yeah, he taught critical thinking to children and they decided that the only appropriate course of action was to kill him. And he decided that he should go along with it because that was basically what they wanted. And so he said, uh, you know, <laughs> it's kind of the whole thing is kind of baffling, but that is the first and most important rule of philosophy is that if you try to shake things up, they will try to kill you. <laughs> oh, that's a, another potential show title, though a bit darker. I also wonder if there's just something going on in the Netherlands, because weren't there all those protests that were getting publicized on Twitter about Dutch farmers making a ruckus because the Dutch government had taken away their fertilizer for some sort of esoteric climate goals? I thought that was an environmental thing. Yeah, I think one issue we're now we're going all over the place here. Now, this is this is not the podcast about everything, but I, we should talk to someone in uh, obviously the better thing to do would be find someone in, to interview in the Netherlands. But the Europe does this thing proportional representation, which means the parties are never really in power, then the elections don't mean anything. And I am very, I'm very skeptical of this. And I, I prefer Joseph Schumpeter and I prefer these other things first past the post. But but as a result, the European political system is very, um, it's bipolar and it moves from very large extremes where people want to always push the envelope because you always have to negotiate. So a good example is uh, if, if you get into a dispute with someone, you can go to mediation and the mediator can say, listen, I will either pick you or them. So you, you each submit a proposal, A or B. So you say, I want, uh, you, you have a dispute with your boss or something. This is weird, like your labor union or something. You say, I want a 10% raise. And they say, we only want to give them a 2% raise. They, the mediator can be in a situation where they pick one or the other, but nothing in between, no compromise is possible. Well, in that case, you have an incentive not to go too extreme because the mediator might be like, this guy is crazy. So I won't pick his thing because this thing is unpickable. But instead, if you're in a situation where you submit the proposals and then later on, there's like a negotiation, now everyone goes extreme. They say, oh, I want a 50% raise and all this other stuff so that later on you can make the concession. And this is called a Dutch mediation? I'm trying to give you the example of how in the US and the UK, one party is elected and then they're in charge. But in the European systems, they have proportional representation. So the parties are all very crazy. That's how you oh, get these far right parties. You get like whatever, UKIP and stuff. Yeah. Do you think there's another
another side effect where if the political parties are stymied and the system is sort of inefficient, the bureaucracy adopts more power because that's a, a constant in the whole system? Yes. It's impossible to know exactly what's best, I think. It's who it's a project of a lifetime. But the, the U.S. founding fathers, of course, wanted everything to be mostly, they mostly wanted to make it very difficult for the government to get anything done because they thought that would protect property rights. And they were mostly correct. Good for them. However, the British parliamentary system also worked very well because when you were in charge, you were actually in charge and then you could not escape responsibility. So if you did something and it didn't work out, you would get unvoted and then everyone would be fired and completely replaced. And then in Europe, they do this other thing that I regard as very toxic, which means that the only way to get what you want is to like go extreme. Well, that's the part of the problem is that you don't actually know how to get what you want. So you just you make as much noise as possible and just hope, hope for the best. But you, you don't you don't actually know to whom your grievance should be addressed in the system because they vote and they get different parties in and then the parties make a coalition later without the voters participation. So the voters, you can get coalitions that aren't even envisaged. This is now becoming very complicated. I don't know if other people would be interested in this. But what I'm trying to say is the Netherlands can be like very liberal on one hand, but then they can also have the only way to make a conservative movement. You see, there's not two parties where you say liberal conservative and then the liberal people start to have worse arguments. So they lose a little bit of support to the conservative party. In in the European system, often the only way to get, you know, if you lose people on the left, then they often will just go far right just to try and get that negotiating thing like I was trying to say before, where they just say, do they have a technological problem here where they implemented representational government too early? And as a result, it's just goofy. For some reason, people love this idea because even in the UK, they're now voting to do proportional representation. I think all this is a step backward. There's a great book about this called The Responsible Parties by Ian Shapiro. And this is like people become more and more frustrated with the way the government works. And so they try to take more control. But that's unfortunately, this is a kind of knee jerk reaction that makes the problem worse. What you want to do is you want total accountability. So you basically want to put like a CEO in charge because what you don't want is excuses. You put the politician in and they say, well, like Barack Obama campaigned on closing Guantanamo Bay. Then he was put in power, but it was still open. Then didn't he get a Nobel Peace Prize one time while talking about how drone strikes weren't really that bad? That was awkward. He got a Nobel Peace Prize like in his first year, like before he had like done anything. And he, you know, so it was very confusing. This is quite a digression. One last question. Do you see proportional representation as having any relation to rank choice voting? Or is that a completely different issue? Uh, they're actually mostly pretty different issues. Uh, what you what you want is a situation where uh, power and responsibility have to go together. So you want a situation where whoever, what makes first past the post work, first past the post is what we have in the, mostly in the United States where you know, like the Electoral College notwithstanding, but we have like whoever gets more votes wins. And then there's no third parties, really. And this is also problematic because if you can maintain a 1% majority, if you can get 51%, you're not really a strong majority, but if politically that can't be challenged, then 50, 49%. Yes, this is a misconception, though, because the, the idea is they have 51% and now they're invulnerable, but it's not really. Everything else is much, takes 
takes that bad situation and makes it much worse. <laughs> How does ranked choice make that worse? I'm just going to say the 49%, they can f- go into the 51% and they can try to find whichever 2% in there aren't getting a good deal and they can offer them a very good deal. So actually, you're very vulnerable in the, the Schumpeterian first-past-the-post system. And the magic is not winner-win-all. That's not the point. Is winner-take-all. The point is really loser-lose-all. That is the point. So the point is you're in power. You have 51%, but you know if you lose just 2%, if you lose 2% anywhere, and you got 49% as a big cohesive team waiting to come kill you, and if you lose that, then you'll be fired and you'll be out completely. Whereas in the European system, you have these political leaders. The leader of the third largest party is basically the dictator of the country because you have party one that has 40%, party two that has 30%, and then party three that has like whatever, 15% or something. So then whoever is leading, yeah, the leader of the third largest party, which is someone that most people don't like because most people didn't vote for the third. They voted for one and two. So we have it's, it's even worse than, in, <laughs> than it currently is in the United States. That person is going to cut a deal with whoever wins and whether or not someone loses 2% or picks up 2%, the politicians couldn't care less. The elections mean even less over there than they do over here. So, but yeah, so that's the idea. I think I'm thinking about something slightly different in that I think ranked choice voting seems like a great idea in that in a, in a first past the post voting system where I, I can only vote once, it means that if we've got a situation where we've got a 51% party, a 49% party, and then maybe there's some 2%, there's some very small percentage candidate who really represents me. If I vote for the Green Party or the Libertarian Party, I'm throwing away my vote in the US system. Yeah, I'm burning it. Indeed. I've got a lot to say about that if you want. So with ranked choice, I get to vote for the people I like. If they aren't competitive, then my vote goes to the next person I like. So my preferences are expressed pretty perfectly, in my opinion. Indeed. But this is the issue, which is that I think representation, the idea that because I'm a libertarian, we've got to have a libertarian at the seat of the table or once in a while we need a libertarian president or something. That's the idea of representation. Like if there's if there's 10 percent of the if 12 percent of the population is African-American, then 12 percent of Congress should be and we should have whatever, you know, like whatever you want. I don't I don't think that's what I'm talking about at all. I think that's unrelated. I know. I'm just talking about a general idea of representation, I think, is, is siren music. Uh, what you really want is not you just want people who can solve your problems and you want accountability. So what the Libertarian Party should do um, is it should meet if the margins of victory in the U.S. elections are very small. So more than there's only like a th- less than a third of the people vote actually vote for like the one of the parties versus the other versus the people who don't vote at all. So many people don't vote at all who are registered to vote. Many people who could be registered to vote don't vote. And then it's mostly it's pretty close, the elections. So if the people who didn't vote started their own party, they would beat the Republicans and the Democrats. But of course, they don't vote. So I'm saying all I'm saying is the margin of victory is often very small. And of course, especially in the Trump Clinton election, uh, I believe was Gary Johnson, didn't he get like 5% or something? He got an enormous amount, which would have easily swung the election one way or the other. So if the Libertarian Party decided what we're going to do is we're going to meet and then in October, a month before the election, we will negotiate with both of the two and we'll say, listen, cut us a deal. And whoever cuts us a better deal will give you, will pledge the support of all of our voters. If the Libertarian Party did that, then whoever was leading the negotiations in the Libertarian Party, they would almost be the dictator of the entire country because they would be able to single-handedly decide which party won and which party lost. Right. This is the European system that you've been criticizing. No, but 
you want to do it before the election. It's the difference between because after the election, there's no accountability. Whatever deal is made before the election, who knows if they'll follow it? The reason is that because the Libertarian Party wants to be something more like a UK pressure group or something. So the people will actually vote for one of the two parties and the the leaders of the Libertarian Party will be accountable to the their members. And they'll say it won't be a part in this conception. There won't be a Libertarian Party. They'll just be like a Libertarian uh, focus group or, or what's it called? Special interest group. How is this productive? We have plenty of special interest groups in the United States that are funded by billionaires or very rich people. Because they would actually get things. Right now, the way it works is those libertarians vote, as you say, they vote the Libertarian Party and the vote doesn't count. So what we could say is we could say as libertarians, we could say, I want an end to the drug war. I want to close Guantanamo. Exactly. And you'd say, who's going to give us that? And then they would have to start competing for the vote. But right now they know that not only do they not have to uh, entice, they don't have to sell us anything. They also don't have to worry about us going to the competition. So it's basically as if we, the Libertarian Party uh, is disenfranchised and doesn't have a right to vote. So we want that. The, in the, if it was a European system, uh, then first of all, other parties would show up and it would be uh, mangled. That was a great digression. Some people can maybe think about that if they want. Our next story is the When Taproot website, which is a very cute website that basically lists the wallets that currently support Taproot, Send and Receive, and those that don't. And it describes how you can even adopt Taproot in a wallet. There's a little code segment, and it also has a description for testing you can do that, if it goes wrong, will lose Bitcoin. So you can decide whether or not you want to give that a try. Are, are you are you sending some batch 32? It's 32M because don't forget that they messed up batch 32. So now we're going to have like 400 address formats, but but whatever. Yeah, I don't know about uh, I think uh, that um, I'm not sure what the, how to interpret the fact that there hasn't been a lot of taproot adoption. Not a lot of people are using taproot at the moment. Uh, Why would they? There was no point in doing research on how to utilize taproot before it was forked in. And it turns out that even creating a taproot root multi-sig like gosh what's it called frost or something that format is pretty complicated yeah i when i followed the instructions to make like the descriptor wallet and i was like this is not easy to do <laughs> so i don't know i think that's going to be tough there's also the, there's not a lot of benefit unless you are using a very complicated script and there's also not a lot of benefit like there's no benefit in the uh, as i understand in the uncooperative close for the lightning network which is a large percentage of the closes are cooperative. So there's, there's the conditions under which there's any benefit at all are, are low, very different than SegWit. So Taproot, I do wonder about if that is too much uh, ivory tower out of touch, maybe, but we'll see. I mean, we have it now, so people can use it. Um, we'll have to just see about, I, I, you know, like it's, it's unfortunate because if you ask people, what does the customer want? What they want, as we were saying before, is a lot of like financial scams and like stupid. Yeah. They want DeFi and NFTs is what the customer wants. But then and also, if you say, what do the experts want? <laughs> it's like, what does the expert cryptographer want? It's like this weird other thing where you have to make a descriptor wallet and you have to like do an awful lot of work. There's also a chart that shows the percentage of SegWit wallets with a non-zero balance over time. And it's kind of interesting just because it took two years after SegWit, you know, barely 50% or 50-ish percent of wallets were, were SegWit or I don't know, addresses with a balance were SegWit ad addresses. 
So it takes a while for this sort of adoption. And I think that there's this idea because most crypto projects, including Bitcoin, have a lot of hype and excitement around them that once this thing gets merged, everything's going to change. And the truth is it takes ages and maybe best practice is not to upgrade like Paul's air gap computer. In general, I, I think someone should push back against software updates. I think they violate the consent of the user to some extent because... Oh, OTA updates, for sure. Consent has to be informed. And the idea that anyone understands what any piece of software is doing is false. Even that I, as someone who creates my own software, there's you know bugs and unexpected behavior. And so, so it's the idea that you could become familiar with something and you trust a piece of software that you've been using for years. I would think twice before I'd let someone, some smooth talking guy, run ex executable <laughs> code on your machine. It's actually kind of like, I've compared it in the past to like, like the Windows update thing. I've compared that to like, imagine Bill Gates just kicks down the door of your house and he's got like a saw and he wants to just do brain <laughs> surgery on your brain. And he's telling you, oh, you're going to love this. This is going to be great. And you're like, uh, okay, maybe I will love it. Maybe I won't. But that's hardly the point. Like you can't just... You can't just interrupt like this. Uh, people's computer is part of their, it's part of their mind. It's part of their experience. It's part of, they got all their stuff, their memories, their work and stuff is bound up in it. It's amazing to me that we're encouraged to put up with unconditional updates that happen right in the middle of the business day if you use a Windows platform. That's crazy to me. I found it to be somewhat tyrannical. I do, yeah. Which brings us to economics. Paul, are you familiar with the Trinity study and the FIRE movement more generally? Isn't that called uh, something retire early, like grind a lot. Financial independence, retire early. Yeah, I like that. In fact, I was into that when I was very, very young myself. I asked my parents something like this, like what you're talking about, where I was like, if I save so much money and it grows a little bit each year and I don't spend that, then won't I have enough money to live forever? And they were like, they're basically like, yes, they didn't quite say it like that. But but yeah, I, I think that's, that's admirable for people to do. I think people should be financially independent. One reason is because like we were talking at the very beginning, it's hard to have actually independent thoughts when you're economically dependent. It's hard to separate your views from your pocket or your, your bread basket or something. Whoever butters your bread, yeah. I've been kind of critical of the FIRE movement because I found it quite useful early in my personal financial journey just because, you know, my parents were 80s yuppies. I mean, they had savings and they had investments, but I don't think they thought about it systematically. So I'd never even thought about budgeting. And I think FIRE is a cool community because they focus on budgeting. At the same time, I think that they're kind of a cargo cult because they don't really understand financial returns. I mean, no one does. But I think in order to not be paralyzed by the complexity of thinking about financial markets, they default to talking about this thing called the Trinity Study. And the Trinity Study was this study, I think, done by Trinity College. I think that's why it's called the Trinity Study. And it basically is a look at portfolio survival rates over the years. And the idea of a survival rate is is if you have a portfolio of a certain composition, stocks and bonds, and you start withdrawing 3% of that every year, and then 4%, and then 5%, if you if you sample different periods over history, 30-year periods, 20-year periods, and you have different start dates to when you begin drawing down on the portfolio, how many of the, these portfolios would go to zero? 
you know, what's the what's the sort of safety of withdrawing this percentage? And this backtested data has been used by the fire community to make conclusions like if you want to have $80,000 of income in retirement, then you need to have a, what is a 2% withdrawal of a million dollar portfolio? Never try to do math on air. You'll always blank. That's, um, is that $20,000? Yes. 2% of $1 million? Yes. So if you want $80,000 and a 2% withdrawal rate, that means you need a $4 million portfolio. This is how the FIRE community thinks. It's a rule of thumb. I think there's a problem with this because one, there's not a lot of stock market data. The Trinity studies from 1926 to 1995, there are a couple different monetary and financial epochs in there. And arguably our current financial epoch starts in 1971 with the end of the Bretton Woods system. And that's just the tail end of their data. So I think that's problematic uh, because stocks and bonds sort of behave differently today. I think they're a little bit more reflexive and less uncorrelated than in the periods that the study looked at them. But then also because they take the Trinity study as gospel, the FIRE community is pretty hostile to Bitcoin. And I just think from a financial perspective, if you're just talking about portfolios, that's an inconsistent thought in my opinion. Okay. Well, first of all, everyone in the U.S. is broke and and no one can save and no one's going to retire. And they're all going to ask the U.S. government for a big handout. And it's going to be like a $20 trillion thing. So I'm hearing you say, so Bitcoin, basically. No one has enough money to retire at all. Like all the boomers are going to retire and no one in the U.S. can save. Everyone is like your parents. <laughs> right. No, this is a very good argument for Bitcoin is our completely doomed fiscal situation, which can only be, I mean, it, it's only a matter of time, basically, though, before the interest on the national debt is just higher than the GDP of the entire country, uh, at which point it will be Armageddon. But long before then, it will be Armageddon. And people make these projections, you know, these are government projections. So what are they worth? Nothing. They're worth literally nothing. They never include like the Iraq war. They never include 9-11. They never include Middle Eastern wars. They never include financial crisis. They never include COVID. So the big things that make the deficit like that are really responsible for like more than half of the, then we've got the, the debt is always going up. The deficit is going up. The rate at which the deficit goes up accelerates. The crisis, the sudden crisis, emergency spending, big ticket items, those go up. Most, most importantly, the political will to do anything about it, it has evaporated. It used to be a debate question. People would ask, what are we going to do to balance the budget? People would say things, but now no one even talks about it. So, so that's the first point is that no one has any no one has any money. What else are we talking about? Oh, the second point is how much do you know about academia? I don't really know that much about you per se. What's your, what's your academia? I've done some research, but I haven't really gotten into the whole publishing game. So you know what happened was some people were talking. They thought this will make an interesting model. This will make an interesting equation or something. And they're like, well, we'll spec out some scenarios and we'll put them in a little table and then we'll try to get a, a publication out of it. But it's even better. And that's what happened. And then you know how the the, the, the lay person, they just find this study and they think science, scientists have decided that 3% is... If you read the Trinity study, the whole point of it is to debunk this crazy idea that a 10% withdrawal rate was fine in retirement. Basically, like you were saying, no one has any money. Yeah, the financial advisors didn't want anyone to feel bad. So they were like, you have enough. Yeah. So they said, well, just do a 10% withdrawal rate. You know, it's the 90s. The stock market's going up so, so much. It'll be fine. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the 90s. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, of course, it's all nonsense. The whole point was to debunk high withdrawal rates, not to support low withdrawal rates. And it's taken completely out of context. And I think the wider story is that everybody needs some sort of story about monetary stability and savings. We need a sense of stability. Otherwise, you can just be, be paralyzed with indecision and concern over this uncertainty. Yes, it's the it's the burden of responsibility is really what it is. This happens. Uh, Karl Popper wrote quite a bit about this, which you, know, you just hit the nail on the head, which is and so did George Orwell, which is that there's the thrill of, of dominating another human being. Um, but there's also the thrill of being dominated uh, is actually also euphoric in a way where you don't you're no longer responsible for your decisions. And so you can no longer be blamed or, or, or guilted or shamed. And this this falls on people very heavily. And many people are very uncomfortable with their making financial decisions, investment decisions. And they really want to hire a financial advisor to do all the thinking for them. And they, they basically want to be in the same boat as their friends. They're very uncomfortable with the idea of having a lot less money than the people around them. But they're also uncomfortable with the idea of, of having more money, of being sort of stigmatized or, or ostracized or what the whatever the word is of just being having a different experience. They want to be they want to just blend in and have the average experience. Emil Durkheim would say they're unconsciously afraid of the anomie of a change in their social status. The anomie, yes. The, the, the idea of this awkwardness. What are my social anchors? How will I fit in? Yeah. So people really don't like this. Finance is very un- unlike, very unlike the environment in which we evolved, which was that you just you hung out in the community. They gave you respect when you were older. They took care of you um, to some extent, you know, but uh, and this is very different than what you were this idea that Zuckerberg can be super rich, even though he's young and all this other stuff. So people don't people hate the idea. They look to they want to find the three percent and they want to say this research with a capital R research has shown three percent is the number. So, Paul, you've been thinking about this for a lot longer than I have, and you've had to talk to your friend and or parent and or relative about, hey, this Bitcoin thing seems really good and I understand it. So I can tell you it's not a scam. And then they said, no, thanks. I'm going to go down to Edward Jones and my investment advisor is going to suggest I buy more government bonds for my retirement. I'm going to suggest that they buy funds that they they participate in and they charge the uh, management fee. They get kickbacks. It's way worse than that, (laughs) you know? So how have you dealt with that? With grace, aggressively? I think it's very difficult. Uh, It's a very good question to ask. I think everyone should get this advice, which is that I think, you know, I had a rule, like a rule of thumb for like, uh, if people smoke cigarettes, you tell them once, you say, hey, you should quit because um, I don't want you to die. And that's that's a horrible way to die. And, you know, you deserve better. But then you never bring it up again. And I think um, similarly, you know, you kind of, I have, I had like left it open on my computer. So my friends would see when I came over, you could kind of gauge the interest. Uh, One person took to it like a fish to water. Some people got interested in it a little more slowly and then they asked me questions later. Other people were like, you know, you didn't put money into that, did you? Or stuff like that, you know, and then you can kind of tell they have a negative reaction. It's difficult because if you tell people to buy and the price goes down, you get blamed. If you don't tell people enough to buy, the price goes up, you also get blamed. At the end of the day, you have to respect the fact that everyone's responsible for their own financial decisions. So if they lose a bunch of money, they don't come to you and ask for money. Or if you make a lot, they don't really come to you and you give them money because what if you and I, we bought Bitcoin, we lost a lot of money. Well, then can I go to them and say, hey, look, a couple years ago, I bought a weird investment. I lost money. You know, can I have money from you now? So it has to be a separable 
whole thing. I think it is very difficult. You know, I think my parents, uh, I have a pretty good relationship with my parents, of course, uh, and my parents have obviously known me for a long time. Finance and personal finance are very different skills. Like you're talking about personal finance is like the ability to save and have a budget, which I think most people know in America know almost nothing about, which is just, which is unfortunate. People also don't know very much about finance, which is like, why do we have a stock market? If you don't know that, like why, why does a country with a stock market do better than one without a stock market? The same way that a country with highways would do better than a country without highways or a country with electro, you know, electrification would do better than a country without. If you don't know why, then you don't understand finance. You don't understand, you understand price to earnings. Uh, my father bought me the book, Benjamin Graham, Intelligent Investor. I saw Lynn uh, quoted Benjamin Graham in her thing that you have in the notes. He bought me that book when I was like 14 or something. My parents tried to teach me a lot like about, you know, bouncing a checkbook back in the ancient days. So they kind of knew a lot about me and they knew that, uh, you know, I was like getting interested in this thing. And then I would complain about what they would say on CNBC. I would say people on CNBC would just laugh at this idea, but they have no idea what they're talking about. And so I think eventually after that, they got a little more open-minded into it. I'm not saying that I convinced anyone to either invest or not invest. I'm just talking about how does this conversation come about where people decide like they understand what the Bitcoin project is about or why they should join or not join. It's a reflection of all those things, your relationship with them, your decision to respect whatever they decide, which is very important. And also the idea that it's separable. Like if, if they don't, everyone's responsible for their own investment decisions, like I was saying. Uh, and also just like, if you know, if they know that you know something about technology or about finance or whatever, then that makes a difference. So I don't know if that helps, but I would just kind of float it, float it once. And then I wouldn't, I wouldn't bring it up again. And gloating, does gloating help? The, I'm just kidding. Sorry. No. <laughs> and actually, I think it is a, an unfortunate thing because I would hate for anyone to be alienated from their friends and family for any reason, including that something like this had come between you and someone else. I think that's a sad thought. And so all the more reason to talk about it, not very much. <laughs> Frankly, I think this, this folds into the idea of the need for stability and this idea of savings. The FIRE community looks at a quote-unquote well-balanced portfolio, and they look to that for some sort of monetary stability over time so that they can imagine a, a prosperous retirement. Bitcoiners clearly think the same thing or something similar about Bitcoin. And maybe it's difficult to, you know, not get overexcited when you think you've found the answer. There's a slightly religious quality to internalizing a really good argument in a way, maybe. I do think a lot of Bitcoiners get overexcited and they think one of my favorite pieces of writing ever is by Eliezer Yudkowsky. I think it's called The Fable of Science and Politics. And it's it's about a it's a it's a it's a very allegorical, it's a metaphor, but basically people go underground because they flee some kind of disaster and they argue about whether or not the sky is green or blue. And then one day someone makes it to the surface again and they see that the sky is blue. And that person was on the blue team because they're like political factions underground because they hate each other. And the person says they clench their fists and they're like, the truth is over. And they the truce, because there was like a truce between them and they're like, the truce is that we can I'm right and now I can prove it. And they're gonna go down and they're gonna like basically kill all the greens. <laughs> and it's like that's the wrong way to react. <laughs> Just because you're right about something doesn't mean that you uh now you can be a huge jerk all the time because anyone can discover that they're wrong five minutes from now. So not a good idea. Behave that way. Now I don't think you had the time to watch this, but the next link is an interview about the early 20th century gold standard, basically how the gold standard was implemented prior to World War II. And it's, it, frankly,
Basically, I found this a really interesting conversation. It's based on a book called England's Cross of Gold. And the reason it was so interesting is that the implementation of the gold standard in many ways is would be very familiar to us today in that there was no strict gold conversion mechanism. The gold standard was kind of a vibe, kind of a feeling, and it was consensus. It was some sort of rough consensus. And it wasn't so cut and dried as we imagine the past to be. And I've noticed this when I've read the history of money and banking in America, which is a very big book about 19th century American banking and its various crises and problems in that gold was a currency, but there seemed to be a lot of confusion about a gold dollar versus a real dollar. It was never clear to me if people actually took gold coins and weighed them and said, I've got a couple ounces of gold, or if they were just holding golden dollars of various sizes and saying, I've got $5 in gold. It just seems like the past was just as confused about money, value, and finance as we are today. And I think if anyone likes to delve into that nuance and flavor, this would be a good listen. Yeah, actually, I'm not an expert on this issue, but my understanding is that it, it was in, constantly in flux. In fact, and there, uh, Europe was constantly declaring war on each other. And whenever there was a war, the king would take all the gold and issue paper currency. And they, they'd use the paper currency internally and they the gold for anything they had to buy from a different country, like cannons or something. You're literally describing the American Civil War and the northern states issuing the greenback. Yeah, because you can use the greenback inside your country, but, you know, whatever, the UK is not going to take the greenback. So this this happened all throughout European history, as far as I'm aware. It happened many times. Um, there was times when people paid taxes, like in the form of grain and stuff, and there, there wasn't very much trade in the Middle Ages, you know, trade on a scale that would necessitate, you know, like with feudalism, like they were just, people just lived on the same land and they just moved the food up or they moved whatever it was up, the military service up. And uh, so there wasn't as, the role of money was very different. And so it's a complicated thing. Uh, I think it's definitely not as cut and dry as just, you know, some people want to tell a story where we had the gold standard. And then as soon as we went to a paper currency, the whole world collapsed. Fiat currency, it causes cancer and, you know, lower birth rates and everything. Right. It wasn't so bad. I mean, it has a lot of downsides. The other thing is, of course, in order to actually use gold as money, as you're saying, you actually have to have gold coins. Otherwise, you're using some form of paper money. The only way to actually use the gold as money is to actually have the physical gold and move it around. And you can see how that has downsides. It's one of the upsides is that the government can't print it. But the downside is that now you can easily be robbed or you can. It's hard for when the recipient gets the coin. They don't know if that is that an ounce or not. You know, like they don't necessarily know if the scale is broken. So it's very complicated. Complicated. And through most of the gold standard, most transaction was done with paper notes issued by banks that supposedly had gold. Because it's much more convenient. So you can see why. In the U.S., there was many different banks that, you know, they had many different uh, circulating notes. And uh, so that, the history of money is fascinating. And everyone should. Perry Merling does a good free uh, MOOC, like a course. I don't remember exactly what it's called, but if you look it up, it's, it does some of that. It's one of the, it's very good. Um, but yeah, that's just something that everyone should look into because 
because that's what we're doing with Bitcoin is we're moving it again to something new that has many of the advantages of both the, the accounting advantages of paper currency and the portability, but also the inflation resistance of gold. And it's even more secure and private than, or at least it will be, than either of those two combined. So that's that will help open your mind to the idea that money is just a technology. We, it's changed many times. It used to be shells. It used to be whatever. It used to just be memory in people's brains. And uh, now it used, then it was banknotes. And now it's it can be it changed before and it can change again. And there's nothing special about one in particular. It's just if it meets, if it solves people's problems. Now, I'm going to skip the Apple Card story because that was really just a little bit of schadenfreude. I think Goldman Sachs has the Apple Card contract and the way that they've boosted more credit card processing numbers is they issue cards to people with lower credit scores and surprise, surprise, people pay back their credit card debt at a lower rate when you do that. So it's just a completely unsurprising story. And the moral is that big institutions make slapdash decisions as well. No one's a genius here. That's sort of my takeaway. So I don't think we really need to discuss that. Okay, cool. Then we don't. The Lynn Alden one is the next on your notes here. Yes, this is her primer on bond investing. I think she's great. I think she's one of those people who writes a thing partially so that she can think about it. And even Richard Feynman said something like the best way to learn something is to teach it. I think it's a little like that. I think it's great. With bonds, all I wanted to say was for years, bonds were the worst investment in the world because you got no yield and you got enormous risk. And it was literally like going to a restaurant and paying for food and they wouldn't give you any food. You'd just pay and you'd just get nothing. And it was like, aren't you happy about a bond? And this, this bond yield were just so low and you had the inflation risk and default risk and now they have those i bond you know whatever those they shot up this whole year they've been like eight nine percent for a you know a, a government bond low risk uh, u.s bond that they basically can't default on so so finally bonds are like a thing again but i don't i didn't know why anyone would buy a bond at all the other thing i want to say about bonds is there's this of course this folk knowledge that you should have more stocks than bonds when you're young than shift when you're older are oh, you're talking about the 60-40 portfolio. Yes, I am. And uh, so th this is not investment advice, of course. Although I think I did pass the, this is neither here nor there, but I, I don't have a, I'm not a licensed financial advisor, but I think I passed the six, series 65 or whatever it was because it's a very easy exam, but uh, but I don't have a, but this is not financial advice, but I just think demography is going to flatten that that uh, that idea that like, because you know what I mean? Like not ever, all the baby boomers can't shift from 60-40 from to like 80-20 like like i just think what a giant disaster that is going to be but uh but hey hey maybe everything will be fine so those are my thoughts on bonds no, if you want to learn more about bond investing, this is the article to read. It kind of talks about some of the math involved in bond valuations and why bonds have this odd convexity where a bond is issued at a 2% coupon. You might say it's a 2% interest rate. And then the next bond is issued at a 1% and suddenly the bond at 2% is worth so much more. What just happened there? And this article will explain some of that math and also how traders and institutions need bonds because of the way that the financial system is architected. And so this sort of leads into what happened last week, which was in Britain, there's a new government led by a woman named Liz Truss. So they call it the Truss government. And Liz, I've actually followed her for a while. She's got a great Instagram presence. And frankly, in my opinion, not much else. So her budget and her government policy is pretty incoherent. In my view, it's sort of like a mix of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. But those two titans of 
neoliberal politics and economics, they presided over economies with much, 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 much lower government and general indebtedness. And so when Liz Truss knocked the top tax bracket off, essentially cutting taxes, but only for the very richest of entities in England, while simultaneously guaranteeing energy bills, but not incentivizing any reduction in energy usage for British people, the bond market sort of threw up and basically there was much less demand for British government debt. And overnight, several British pension funds seemed to go insolvent and needed immediate bailouts from the Bank of England. And well, why did that happen? The the, the reason is that there's been a problem over the last half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st, where there's so much government debt outstanding that government debt needs buyers. And so certain entities like pension funds have been required by law in the United States, in Britain, and in other countries to purchase the government debt of those countries and hold it. And so this is a way of sort of finding places to park all of this debt. That's sort of one perspective. There are other perspectives on this, but that's one of them. And you'll learn more in this article. Yeah, I think there's too much to say about that. We should just should just keep going because that's a whole thing about bonds is a very general topic, right? <laughs> yeah, we sort of covered this Michael Basil ergo BTC privacy thing by talking about why is this privacy guy distributing a PDF? There's probably something nasty in there, in my opinion. But it's actually a pretty boring article. The one takeaway is that Ergo is pretty harsh on Bitcoin. And I quote, the result is a stagnant default protocol that is easily tracked as we presented in our previous article. And then he talks generally about how to think about linking UTXOs together and what that means for privacy. So well, I have a lot of, as a technologist, I have a lot of ideas for improving Bitcoin privacy. It's kind of pointless to explain them all now, but I have the Zcash sidechain. I have, uh, I wrote about something called deniability, which is a simple wallet trick. Uh, I think that's going to improve eventually, but it's just, it's just a matter of time. I think that's very pessimistic of him for to just write it off completely. I don't think that's everyone's got their privacy ideas. So I think that will just improve. When I see that blanket dismissal of Bitcoin privacy, it often makes me think, okay, I think someone's into Monero and sees the default privacy and maybe doesn't quite understand why Monero is not a solution because of its it's a magnitude smaller than Bitcoin and it clearly can't scale up to even current Bitcoin adoption, let alone widespread adoption. Would you agree with that statement? Or Well, I think it's just difficult. There's so much network effects with money. And you know, when Monero was being started, it was like, what else are they going to do? They went on Chris and Josh, Ricardo went on Chris and Josh's show and they were like, you're making an altcoin, you suck. And he's like, well, what else am I supposed to do? You know, I'm I, I'm interested in this and I want more privacy. And they're like, well, you know, I guess you're right. So it's it's a new thing. I think it's 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 done very well. If you if you see my the drive chain presentation I often give, I complain at Bitcoin. I say it's it's we suck as Bitcoiners for allowing this to happen, that these darknet markets have gone Monero only and it's our loss that we didn't try more to make privacy a big priority. Is there a reason why you chose Zcash for your first drive chain? There's quite a few. Well, yeah, one was, as you say, uh, people don't like, they get nervous about the whole privacy thing. So I kind of wanted to bank that one before I got more attention or maybe even, you never know, start a company or something. You know what I mean? I wanted to do the subversive one (laughs) first. I thought it would get more cred, like more kind of uh, the community would see, okay, this guy really is serious about... Hold on, why is Zcash 
more subversive than Monero because Zcash is optional privacy? The privacy technology in Zcash, I think, probably is better. But the community of Zcash, it has a tax. It's not very liquid. Yeah, I mean, there, there's some bad incentives there. Weird stuff going on with like the foundation and stuff. So it's it's not as good as the, the coin is not as private. But the, the technology is better. Zcash is also a, for, a code, a software fork of Bitcoin. So it was easier to do. It's just more compatible. You understand Bitcoin. It's like a Zcash, like a fork of Bitcoin 0.12 or something. So whereas Monero is completely different. So I, Monero, the advantages of Monero are that the community is larger, that the coin is more liquid, that it has more adoption on the, the darknet sites where it's actually used by people. It has more of a, I think the brand is actually better too. Like Zcash is kind of like so, but I think the technology is better. So as a sidechain, sidechain is always going to be optional for anyone to use. Uh, this is also a misconception, I think, that people say, well, Monero, it's mandatory privacy. But that's not really the case. I'm, I'm, I, I repeat this very often, but, but people don't, they don't really agree with me and they don't really get it, I think. But the thing is, it's optional to use Monero. You could say, am I going to use Bitcoin? Or am I going to use Monero? That's no different than saying, am I going to use a transparent Zcash or shielded Zcash? And it's no different than saying, I'm going to use regular Bitcoin or Zcash sidechain. It's, privacy is always going to be optional. The privacy is always going to be, there's always going to be a case where you can opt out or opt in or do anything else. Or someone can say, we can only accept Bitcoin if you also attach your driver's license, which is exactly what the exchanges do. So there's no sense in which that is a difference. So that's one of the reasons why I copied it. I thought it would be, it would be really good for privacy. It would be easier to do. The technology is good. We can uh, finally move privacy forward because you give people a Z address. It's got to be easy to use. It's got to be simple. I wanted to tee up the Namecoin sidechain where you have reusable payment codes, reusable Z address. So you wanted to have that first. I thought if I did it later, there'd be more drama and scrutiny. You know what I mean? Like imagine if I had done it after the tornado cash thing. Yeah, I mean, you would have gotten so much more attention after Tornado Cash. Maybe that would have been more... The wrong kind. No, there's no such thing as the wrong kind. You think so? <laughs> well, I mean, like getting uh, arrested and, or murdered. <laughs> well, I'll just stay out of the Netherlands, I guess. Yeah, they're going to sell my car. <laughs> Don't drive your car to the Netherlands. <laughs> yeah, they're going to go to the US and say, this is our car now. <laughs> We're from the Netherlands. Have some Dutch flowers. Have some flowers. I just have a note on Michael Basil's credit freeze guide. I give this link to everybody, people at work, people I meet, my family, Paul Storks. Everybody should block out an hour or two and go through this guide and freeze their credit. If you have not frozen your credit in the United States, someone is opening up a loan or a credit card in your name. And once that happens, it will dog you for years and you will spend hundreds of hours solving it. So go and spend an hour today, get it done, get it locked down. You're going to need to note down some passwords, but those in a password keeper like Bitwarden or KeePass, just do it. That's our PSA of the day. Paul's going to do it and let you know how it went. It's a good PSA. Yeah. Why? Well, you know, I, you should. I also, I, I uh, check my credit report every year, which is kind of a silly thing to do, but it's important. People should do it. Freeannualcreditreport.com, I believe. I think so. Yes. They. I think it's just maybe annual credit. But the, the government said that they have to give you one for free every year. So since they did that, you might as well take advantage of it. And before... We move to Bitcoin education. I just want to mention a software update, and this is entirely self-serving because most of the boosts and feedback that come into the show come in via Fountain. And now Fountain, which is a podcast 2.0 enabled app, has had a big update, which supports a play queue, which was such an obvious feature. How could they not have that from the beginning? But hey, now they do. And CarPlay. I don't know what CarPlay is, but Chris talks about Apple
Apple CarPlay a lot, like it's really important. So that might be important to people. So if you are currently using AntennaPod or Apple Podcasts, check out Fountain. It might be good enough now. And then you could boost in and send a message to the show. You could even send messages to Paul and then he'd have to come back to answer them. It would be great. Yep, do it. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. The self-hosted show is a podcast about running your own digital infrastructure and having fun while doing it. Do you listen to the self-hosted show, Paul? Well, you should, because then you learn how to host your own media server, control your home IoT devices with Raspberry Pis, or maybe old laptops now, because Raspberry Pis have gotten kind of expensive. It's so great. Check it out at selfhosted.show or search for self-hosted show in your podcast app. I was waiting for you to jump in, but you... Waiting for you literally you asked when i had a sip of water so i ruined it i was gonna make a joke about like oh all the way from the planet jupiter or something then it was too late so the whole thing i wrecked the whole thing i apologize for that i ruined i ruined the ad read well you know if you'd gotten that joke in they would have sampled it and all of the linux people who (laughs) hate bitcoin would have heard your joke and then they would have gotten into drive chain not bitcoin yeah they would have been like out of spite they would have been like you could have gone viral. <sighs> One day. But I'll say this. Jameson Lopp is uh, hes great because he's in here in the notes and he, he actually does things. He'll like test things with like stopwatch. He's like a real... Oh, yeah. Like a real contributor to the research world. He'll like time things with a watch. He has like numbers. He'll share his bash script that he uses to, you know, programmatically test things. And his bash is on fleek. It's really good. Do people say that anymore on fleek? You've never heard that, have you? I don't know. Probably. (laughs) I'm trying to remember what it's about. So Lop has done some research on how to do encrypted cloud backups, even using free cloud solutions that generally like to surveil your data. So I suggest you check that out. I've actually tried several of these things in the past. We can get into them in a future episode. We also had a section on ZeroSync, which is an implementation of U3XO. Paul, would you mind introducing U3XO briefly, like in a minute? I will try. It, uh, the UTXO set is basically a giant table that has how much money everyone has. So there's how many is you, there's TXIDs like on the left and these amounts on the right. That's not literally what it is, but I'm just, please don't send me hate mail, people who actually know. But it's basically the current state of the network. How much money does everyone have right now? And then all the Bitcoin transactions are messages that update that. Uh, Taj Dreja, this is one of the two people behind the Lightning Network. He invented this clever way of storing the UTXO set in a big Merkle tree, more or less, so that it's very small. And so more bandwidth is needed, which means that some people don't like this idea, but it's an optional thing. So more bandwidth is needed to run a full node, but less hard drive space, like way less, like very, very, very tiny amount, easily fit on a phone. And with that, the two people who are sending and receiving money can look at the UTXO set to make sure that money moves from here to there and without needing this giant 500 gigabyte node. And I have no idea if this explanation is comprehensible to anyone, but that's probably 60 seconds. So there you go. And this implementation, it seems to use some sort of proof to, is it is it creating a checkpoint? Is it basically saying like, we can use this proof to describe the UTXO set at this point in time, and then you can build the chain on top of that without having to sync the last 10 years of data? I have absolutely no idea how this works, but I'm going to take an educated guess, which may be the worst or best thing ever. But what, I, what UTXO does, it has these parallel bridge nodes that, as it says, bridge between this UTXO 
ISO world and like the normal full node world. There's also this thing called assume valid where it's uh, you just kind of have a, a block headers hash in the software where you just say, listen, we're not going to check the signatures before here because that was like a year and a half ago. So if there's going to be, if, if your blockchain is off by a year and a half, you've got bigger problems. So as a result, you can kind of just start there a year and a half ago. And my guess is that if you start there and then you have bridge nodes that are compatible, then basically you have jumped with a very high degree of security. You've just jumped right up to the the current state of, 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 having, of having a valid uh, U3XO node um, without going through like 99% of the work. Again, I am really sorry if no one has any idea what I'm talking about, but we have this thing assume valid, which is an optional parameter. So you don't have to do it. But basically what it says is part of the block that takes a long time to check is the signature of every transaction. That takes a long time. And there's a configurable option to just skip that. So you say, I'm going to check and make sure if, if I send three Bitcoins from A to B and that I subtract three and add three, computer can do that very quickly. But the ECDSA, the cryptography parts take longer. So yeah, I wish I were more familiar so I could have a better explanation. But Utrix so is basically a way of what it says is you can audit. This is going to be really weird. It's kind of like you have the, the regular UTXO says like a big library filled with books. And UTXO says, put a blindfold on, walk exactly to this floor, walk exactly to this shelf, reach out your hand and pull the book off and turn to this page. And so you don't see most of what's going on. And therefore, normally you needed a whole library that you had to constantly update. But now you can only update like the few pages of the few books that you are using. Uh, and as a result, there's lots of extra stuff to keep track of these instructions <laughs> for how to move around the library blindfolded. This is a weird metaphor. But as a result, you don't need to have a whole library. You don't need to have the whole thing. You just say, I, I can prove that this book is here. And it doesn't matter whether or not you have only one book on a, on a shelf that has no nothing else in the whole library or whether or not you have the whole library because of the whole blindfolded part. But I this this is probably wasting everyone's time. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm not familiar enough with Utrexo to have a good, great explanation. Or... But essentially, Utrexo is taking a trade-off in validation where we'll increase the speed of validation and the size of the Utrexo or the way it's stored in exchange for faster validation and a smaller UTXO set on your device, maybe. Yeah, you don't, you, you have a, only a, a, like I said, you don't have the whole UTXO set on your device. You only have like the one book that you are using and more bandwidth is needed, which is bad, but less storage space is needed, which is good. And a parallel uh, processing, the bridge nodes are needed, which is bad, but it all may be worth it for the right type of person with the right trade-off. That, that person who has no storage, but so much internet. That person I've never met. I think that's uh, that's always been my question. He had in mind mobile phones, I think. He had like your computer would do it, sync to the phone. The phone could stay in sync and it would, would need hard drive space. And you'd have a fully validating node on your cell phone. Yeah, that's a use case. Some people don't like this idea, such as why well, I probably shouldn't say. No, please. We love Goss. <laughs> I think something interesting is that Taj Dreja, he went on what Bitcoin did in 2019. And uh, Peter McCormick sort of thought that that would be mostly about the Lightning Network, but he was more interested in talking about U3XO. So he's a very interesting guy to talk to always. I would, uh, you should interview him if you want. Okay, Paul Stork's stamp of approval. Now, Paul, you've been a great sport. You've fulfilled your role as a co-host admirably. You told a joke. I mean, I couldn't have asked for more and I really appreciate that. And now it's time for the main event, which is Drive Chain. How would you like to get into it? Well, I guess I'm wondering like, at this point, I'm wondering like, what have you already heard about Drive Chain? Like, what is out there? Like, what do people, what 
what do people say about it? I don't know. I've been talking about it for seven years. It always seemed very straightforward to me ever since before I wrote the post. But then like there's these weird ideas floating out there about it. Okay, so I've talked about DriveChain on previous episodes and I'll give you my understanding, which might be the general understanding of our listeners. Does that sound okay? Yes, it does. Getting I'm taking notes. Great. <laughs> okay. I'm just wondering what's going to happen now. <laughs> So personally, I've found sidechains to be a interesting concept and one that seemed to make a lot of sense. And I think this might be because I think of Bitcoin as a monetary asset and as the base asset. And so it makes sense to take the base asset and to move it to a higher or parallel level in the financial system that has different properties and probably less security. And of course, that brings us to Liquid. So Liquid is a federated sidechain and it's basically a multi-sig address on Bitcoin controlled by a federation. You have to trust them. They take custody of the Bitcoin and then you get a liquid token. And liquid is interesting because you can actually peg into liquid trustlessly because you, you can always send money to the liquid multi-sig and then you can use that transaction to redeem liquid Bitcoin on their side chain, but you can't peg out. And while liquid has interesting properties like lower fees, like, like private transactions, like a Uniswap clone automated market maker exchange, on Liquid that I think is opening now, which seems kind of interesting. Paul, you made the greatest criticism of Liquid that I've ever read, which is a trustless two-way peg isn't 10% or 100% better than a one-way peg. It's a bajillion times better. It's so much better and enables so much more that who even cares about a trusted peg? And that brings us to drive chains. And my understanding of drive chain, based on reading mostly your work, so if I misunderstand it, I'm going to blame you is that the idea of a drive chain is you essentially create two soft forks, blind merge mining and something else that might be just the drive chain soft fork. And you have this ability to sort of create a transaction, an address that's like a drive chain address. And when you send Bitcoin into this address, you've also created drive chain software that drive chain nodes use to read this address. And so for a drive chain node to work, you also have to have a Bitcoin node. But what's cool is is that Bitcoin users who don't use the drive chain, they don't care about the drive chain. They don't need to run that software. And miners don't even need to run that software. Miners can just treat this like a Bitcoin transaction, except there is one little caveat. And the caveat is you can send into the drive chain address and then you get the coins on the drive chain. You Maybe the drive chain is Zcash. Maybe it's Monero. Maybe it's Ethereum. You do all this wild stuff on the drive chain. Then you want to peg out. Now, you can always sell your drive coins for Bitcoin in a market. Market, but let's say you do that and the market maker now has a bunch of drive coins and they're like, oh, you know what? I'd really like those Bitcoins. So they want to peg out. The peg out process on the drive chain takes at least 90 days, I think. And so the security of the drive chain peg out depends on somehow on miners agreeing to the peg out and not trying to sweep the coins themselves. And the security is that to sweep the drive chain coins, you'd need to control 51% or more of hash rate for like a year or something, at which point the security of Bitcoin is completely compromised. So all in all, it's a way to scale Bitcoin, enable new features and technologies, maybe eat the lunch of all the altcoins and remove this perverse incentive of I have a new idea, but now I'm going to create a financial Ponzi scheme around it. Now you can just do it on Bitcoin and it'll be better because you can bootstrap your project off of Bitcoin's network effect and Bitcoin security. So from what I've read, basically drive chains seem really great. I 
don't see the downside. And my understanding of the resistance is that it's kind of complicated. It's kind of like SegWit. It works in a slightly weird way. The way that the minor security works is uh, sort of complicated. You can hear, I, I don't fully, uh, I've kind of forgotten exactly how it works. And so it's just complicated enough to do nothing about, is my view. Yeah, well, I think that's pretty good. I mean, so like, why do you think that I, like, you remember when I wrote the post, the date? It was years ago. I can't remember. Yeah, it was a long time ago. It was November 2015. So it was in the middle of the scaling war, actually. Like, the, it wasn't, it depends on when that started, but it was, that was heating up and scaling Bitcoin. The first conference was in September. The second one was in December. So yeah, uh, I, I agree. I don't really see any of the downsides at all. But, um, and to me, I didn't really think it was that complicated either because it's just an, like an integer that counts up from like one to 13,000 and then releases the coins more or less. So we're talking about the, the security mechanism. So let's first focus on why we want drive chains and why we might need drive chains eventually or sooner than eventually. Why do you think we want drive chains? Well, why do you think I'm supposed to be Socratically doing? So why do you think, what do you think I'm going to say? Like, why do you think we might need them? Well, I mean, everything I've talked about scaling, you know, if we create... Yeah, infinite scale. We have the right scale immediately. We have privacy. We have extensibility. There's no excuse. No more No more excuses to leave. It supports Bitcoin security because drive chains pay fees in Bitcoin, and then they also receive Bitcoin's... Smurge mind. Security, the... Yeah, right. The way that the drive chain works, it's not like if I build Terra Luna and it blows up in the drive chain, it, it can't affect Bitcoin. It's not going to like, you know, whatever, screw up Bitcoin. So it seems safe in that sense. Right. If Even if that community says, I, we want to do, it's like a DAO thing, we want to roll back the chain. Well, they can roll back the chain over there without it rolling back any main chain Bitcoin blocks. So the, the regular layer one Bitcoin user doesn't need to even notice anything is happening if the side chain wants to reorg, which of course, even that is a weird thing for them to do, but that's their decision. I mean, there's so many benefits to having a drive chain because then we can have native Bitcoin privacy. And I know you said that using Bitcoin versus using Monero, it's just the same as having the option of privacy on Bitcoin, but it's not at all because it's one network. We don't need to go through a trusted intermediary. Indeed. When I said that, I was saying th this idea of mandatory versus optional privacy. Okay. Yeah. That does a lot less work than a lot of people think. Of course, there is a huge difference between having privacy via an altcoin and via sidechain because we all these m different monies have network effects. It's very difficult. Life would be quite annoying if you had to have a different currency for every store. It would eventually revert to, to barter. A multi-coin world is a step backward. It's a step towards barter, towards every country as a different currency. Exactly. But there's huge monetary network effects. So when you go to Japan, you have to pay with yen. When you go to Europe, you have to pay with euros. You you know, you can't you can't take euros. You cannot spend euros in like Latin America. They just, no matter how many euros you have, like most people just won't take them unless they're a bank or someone sophisticated. They won't, they won't take them. We don't want a case where the value of the entire monetary network rises or falls based on people's whims or fears or based on new technology being invented because technology is makes enormous progress and it's very unpredictable. Which idea will work? Which idea will not work? With drive chains, you don't need to trade out of Bitcoin to get more features or, or do more stuff. It exactly. It's exactly like you go to your ATM and you put a $20 bill in. You don't want to get some random amount. You want to be credited with $20 in your checking account. And then when you withdraw from an ATM, you don't want to get a random in some amount that's based on market rates. If you have 100 bucks 
in your checking account and you want to take out $40, you want it to go down from $100 to $60 and you want to get two $20 bills. Let's say I'm convinced and I think drive chains are cool. I'd like to have a drive chain wallet that lets me send Bitcoin into the drive chain and it's the Zcash drive chain and I've got some sweet private Zcash on that and I hang out there and then maybe do some private trades or whatever and then I can send these Zcash Bitcoin out. I want to peg out so that I can enjoy my gains on the Bitcoin layer one, which is, you know, the world's best money, yada, yada. How does that peg out process work, Paul? Intentionally, it's very slow and difficult, but that is because lay people are not intended to use it. So it, it, it is there. Anyone can do it, but you would want to just, you would want to use something like Coinbase or an HTLC to just swap the coins and you can instantly get, swap out your layer two coins for layer one coins from anyone else who's willing to sell them to you. Now, what that person is going to do is they will broadcast a withdrawal on the side chain. The side chain is keeping track of these big periods of time, which are very rare. There's about one per quarter. So let's say we're in, in Q2 or in Q, like right now we're in Q3 because it's October. So the side chain is, is watching its old withdrawal, the one that it started in Q3. That one's happening in Q4. So now we're in Q4. You click the withdrawal button. Your little withdrawal goes on the list with everyone else's. And then on like January 1st, this is done by block time. So it's not actually based on any date per se. But for example, you're on January 1st. It has a big list of everyone who wanted to withdraw. It calculates one. Tra- this is something that it's only doing four times per year. And so January 1st, April 1st. And this is drive chain software. This is the drive chain node. The side, the side chain, the side chain node is doing all this automatically. You just click withdraw. It's doing all this. You get on the list. It's as if your money goes to a train station and is waiting for the next train. There's four trains a year. So you say, okay, we got to make sure we get there before January 1st. Right. And so do you pay fees to withdraw? Is it? Yes, you pay a normal, every message on the sidechain pays the sidechain fee. And then in the train, the queue, the line of people to get on in the train station, that is sorted by the layer one fee that you pay back on layer one. So unfortunately, there's two fees because it's a cross chain transaction. So this encourages the layer one fee to be high so that it's later included in a block. So this, what happens is it's sorted by layer one fee and uh, the train pulls up and the train can hold like, I don't remember exactly what it is right now, but it's like something like 20,000 or so withdrawals. So it can hold quite a few. It's basically going to take a whole block. So four times a year, if that drive chain has any sort of activity, there's going to be like a whole block of transactions shooting out of the drive chain. It will be a large transaction, but actually it's what a lot of people don't realize is that an output is very small. So it's only like a taproot output is 43 bytes and a regular P2SH output is now I'm going to be really embarrassed when I get this wrong. Okay, I can probably try to do it in my head. It's eight plus one plus. Warned you about doing live math. This is harder. Let's call it, I don't know, let's just call it, we'll just say it's 40 bytes so that we'll try not to think about how wrong that is. But uh, most of a transaction is the input. The input is what you select the money and then the signature is big. So you you say, I want to take money from here. I sign it, sign off on taking that money and I want to put it to these other places. The outputs are very small. So 40 bytes, uh, we'll just, I'll just do it right now and in the browser with it'll say one million divided by which is like a one megabyte block divided by 40 bytes so that you can fit in there uh, 25,000 so you can fit quite a few when you're paying out if 25,000 people wanted to pay one person that would not work that way at all that would be completely night and day different story but paying out to people is actually quite easy so actually you can get if there are only 12,000 people paying out in the block then and this transaction uh, once it's cleared by BIP300 it doesn't have to be like that block. 
block. Once it's cleared, it can be in any block that it's cleared until it, it times out. So it has six months to make it, and then it has three months to get it. It needs three months to get in a high enough ACK score. What is this ACK score? Because we on the drive. Okay, we're, I'm on the drive chain, and I'm let's say I'm a power user or a business, and so I'm going to peg out of the drive chain. So I queue up my transaction on in the drive chain on December 26th, and now it's January 1st. What happens? First of all, you know that you paid enough layer because you can see where you are in line and you know how much space there is on the train in advance. So either you you know that you're going to make it on the train because you're high enough in the queue, like the train can fit 20,000 people and you're, you're number 12,035 or something. So you know you're going to make it on or you know that you're not going to make it on, in which case you have an incentive to simply uh, cut a deal with other people in you in line. You either can bump your layer one fee up and move closer in line or you can just say, I don't want to go through the BIP300 withdrawal system. Sell them your drive coins. I'll just sell these coins on Coinbase for 99 cents on the dollar. Yeah, I'll just say. Or, or if you know someone in the line, you could just talk to them and somehow give them... You can combine the outputs. Yes. You can say, I'll sell you. Well, that would be what you would do is you would say, you want to withdraw eight coins. I want to withdraw 12 coins. You pay me 11.99 on layer one and I'll just give you these. And then it doesn't cost them any more bytes in the chain. It doesn't cost them any more fee to change the number they're withdrawing from eight to 20. So it's actually efficiency encourages consolidation. Yeah, those some nice incentives there. But now we're uh, we made it into the queue. It's it's January first. The train, the new train's here. The doors open. It puts the first twenty thousand people on, or if there's only eighteen thousand people in the whole line, it puts everyone on. Closes the train doors. The train. What is this train? Is this train is basically the transaction ID of the transaction that would pay from on layer one from the output that has all the money, all the BTC to all those people. So it's basically that is what the transaction ID will be in the future. It hasn't happened yet, but that's kind of what I mean when I say the train. That's like the identifying ID. The train is there. The train is introduced as a withdrawal in the BIP300 logic. So it says someone wants to withdraw via this TX ID, which is the train. This is just a TX ID floating around in people's mempools. The hash, yeah. It's a hash that you insert in a Coinbase transaction because someone is going to say, I want this to be a withdrawal from the sidechain. And the other one just fit. The other one just finished. You can only do, you can only do one at a time. But if you have to put this hash into a Coinbase transaction, then a, a miner needs to do this, right? But any miner can do it at any time. It doesn't have to be at any particular day. In fact, you can do, you can do one on January 1st, then one on January 3rd, and then five on January 6th. You can introduce a new one at any point in time, but you can only, they all start with an X score of zero. So it's very easy to get in. Because basically, like once the transaction gets on the train, it now takes at least three months for the doors to open again at the Bitcoin station. Yeah, right. Exactly. Each block, you will move the train one unit closer to its destination. And so this is an endorsement of this one withdrawal. And you can only endorse one at a time per, per sidechain. So if you have sidechain number seven, the Zcash sidechain or whatever it is, you're picking one that you're going to put your endorsement behind. And you say, this is the one. And why would a miner do that? That. Well, first of all, they, it's the only way they can collect the layer one transaction fees from including it um, when the doors finally open. So it's not until this is act that down the road, the uh, the doors open on layer one and they can include the transaction in a layer one block and collect those transaction fees. But more importantly, it's just because that the sidechain infrastructure presumably is what allows all the sidechains to run happily and be paying fees this whole time and increasing the market price of Bitcoin, hopefully because the coin is now a super 
Supercoin. And of course, the other reason is that it doesn't really cost them anything to do. It's just a very small amount of Coinbase space. They, they have to do it once to introduce the withdrawal, but they don't have to keep doing it. They only have to keep doing something else. It's called the M4, which is very also very small. If they're completely indifferent, then no coins will ever be withdrawn from any sidechain. Okay, but if I'm a miner and I introduce this hash into the Coinbase transaction, which begins this ACK process of, you know, theoretically three months for the drive chain to experience a withdrawal and for those UTXOs to unlock on Bitcoin and go to their owners. Does that mean that I will get to mine the block where these UTXOs finally move and collect the transaction fees? Or could I introduce it and then someone else grabs that block and they mine it three months later? Yeah, they could. That's not so you're right. It's not the real incentive. Well, the real incentive is just to keep the sidechain infrastructure on because the, a coin that has sidechains changes from being just a big one Bitcoin to being a, a coin that can do anything and go to any piece of software. So it's it increases the utility of the coin. It should increase the market price of the coin. Also, the existence of all the sidechains are all paying fees. But if no one, if you shut the withdrawal deposit infrastructure off, then presumably all those fees would go down. So it's something of a collective action problem. But it's really, it's such a small thing, you know, 40 bytes or whatever, once every three months for sidechain that there's no real cost either. So there's, there's no specific benefit to them, but there's really, it's a very small cost as well. Right. And, and, and theoretically, you could mine that big, juicy drive chain transaction in three months. So there's some... Yeah, exactly. Someone will. Each block, you move the train forward one space. But why do we do it this way, Paul? Why does it take three months? Why not just say, okay, you want to do a trawl? Great. Boom. You know, whatever. Four, 10 confirmations. Because the layer one is not looking at anything the sidechain is doing. It doesn't know anything about how the sidechain is conducting its business. So there could be like an attack. This is the origin of the miner. The miners can steal critique, which says the miners can just pay themselves the money. So they can, but it takes them three months and everyone will see. And then everyone will know that they're not willing to honor basically the, the contract of the sidechain contract, which is... I see. But layer one nodes cannot be made to enforce the sidechain because it's very, very important that regular people who are running a Bitcoin core node, it's very important that they never be required to like download sidechain blocks or download sidechain software or whatever. So they, they can't be looking. Hold on, Paul. Uh, Ethereum has just called. They'd like a word with you. <laughs> yeah. What do they want? Do they want to talk about proof of work? They'd like to, they'd like to talk about ZK rollups and proposer builder separation and data availability proofs, maybe. <laughs> okay. With the, the ZK proof situation, I think that doesn't actually help as much as people think it does because you don't know if the ZK prover is working unless you download everything and check it against the ZK prover. And if you don't keep all that data, you can't use it. So you'd better keep it or else it could get lost and we burn those coins. The data availability is, I think, a bigger problem where it's like the side the blockchain does not use a client-server model and said it's peer-to-peer. -peer. But that means that everyone has to be a server, basically. Everyone has to serve the data. Otherwise, it won't exist because it's like you have a copy machine and you want to make someone a copy of something, but no one has the original. <laughs> so no one has the original. So the data availability is kind of really the, where the rubber meets the road. They say with this data availability, data availability proof thing they you know i that might help or it might be a disaster right because what if everyone if what if it's chunk 17 that's missing then the blockchain will have to reorg to before that state or 
no one will have the data. It'll be it will be a disaster. I guess it'd be easier on a proof of stake system because that naturally centralizes to just a, a few validators, so they can coordinate on the reorg more easily. Well, it also means you're giving up. You're saying only a few small number of professional people will be running the nodes, so it's more likely that they just have really nice servers with lots of backups, and it's just less uh, less what's the phrase like fault tolerant or less like recovery enabled yeah it's less decentralized it's less anti-fragile right exactly so they made a lot of interesting choices which are fine uh for them i guess but the goal with this is not like i think data availability is really where the rubber hits the road this this bit 300 in a way it kind of is a zk proof and it just in a very very different way if that makes any sense because what it's saying is we just assume that this train hash is real but if it's not there's plenty of opportunity for the real one to be brought to everyone's brought to the miners attention because the sidechain software is going to be calculating what the actual train should be automatically all the time and it will it are it always knows what that is that would be in the gui that's in every sidechain block header so that's very 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 easy to find the real the real hash which is only changing there's only four of them every year so that's the real one and you just kind of conjecture one so that's the ultimate zero knowledge thing we don't, i don't do any computation i don't do any fancy zk math that no one can understand i just say you just assert this and nothing guarantees that it's correct at all um other than the fact that it's in everyone's interest for it to be correct because no one wants theft and no one wants the sidechain modularity system to collapse because if it, if it does then the only the alternatives are to have bitcoin that doesn't have sidechains which would be presumably worse less transaction fees for miners less utility of the coin or we'd have to live in a world where there's some kind of mandatory extension block or something which would also be terrible the process for stealing from the drive chain is also cumbersome and unlikely to succeed because if i it's i think it's very unlikely to succeed yeah for a variety of reasons well let let me describe my understanding of this attack so if i have a if i'm the big drive chain miner and i know a mining pool and we decide we're going to steal the funds in the drive chain because it's up to a thousand bitcoins looking pretty nice i want to retire to an island or something hang out with suzu and kyle davies maybe do kwan so i do kwan's definitely there we're we're gonna see him on that island for sure he's fully cooperating with authorities (laughs) he's fully cooperating with some mai tais exactly i I talk with the mining pool and we we decide okay dad we're going to sweep all these drive chain coins in a big transaction so i'm a drive chain miner so i create a, a block all on my own there are other drive chain miners and they're being like what the hell man but i've already given this block to the you know and it's not a valid block right because i don't have any of the private keys for these drive chain addresses or not on all of them but i create this on the side chain it's an invalid block the main chain doesn't know because it just sees a train just sees a hash come in and it just says okay i guess this is who we're paying right exactly the bitcoin network is unaware that i've created an invalid block on the side chain but my mining pool that i'm colluding with has already put the withdrawal header into a coin base and now the clock is ticking so what happens now well now you need to move the train for every block you need to move it up and you need to do this for three months assuming you have 100 percent of the hash power which of course you don't right if you have a, a more, then maybe you'll get it in five or six months. The other miners... Yeah, the other miners are going to be like, why wasn't I cut in? And so they create their own block. 
And then the other things too is there may be on the side chain, they, yeah, they may make the counter proposal. On the side chain, people may decide, whoa, 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 all our money's being stolen, at which point they'll there may be a panic in which instead of selling for 99 cents on the dollar, they'll start to sell for 95 cents, 90 cents, 80 cents on the dollar. People, this is a hypothetical game theoretic uh, thing. Right. So there, there actually could be a, a speculative attack on the drive chain. But who's going to buy those coins? At the, it'll be the other miners, of course, or whoever, and the other miners miners can make sure that the that one withdrawal doesn't succeed. So it's very, very difficult to actually make the, the attack succeed unless unless there's enormous like agreement among lots and lots of people that the sidechain, this particular sidechain shouldn't exist for some reason and that it should just be smashed. And you view that as a feature? I do, yeah. That's another thing that very few people understand, I think, that some sidechains can be written so that they attack other chains or they're just a menace in general. And what we actually want the miners to curate a list, a portfolio of sidechains that all work as a team to give us everything that we want. One really easy way of seeing it is that you don't want, you really don't want there to be like two name coin sidechains because that's kind of annoying. There should just be one name for something. But there are other reasons as well. There's this complicated Oracle thing. Paul, some of our listeners might not have heard of Namecoin. Namecoin was a, I think the first altcoin that Satoshi was interested in. It was so early. And this was a proposal to do domain names on on a blockchain so that your website DNS would be somehow validated and redirected using more mutable data than the current trusted DNS setup on the internet. Right now you have to pay um, you have to pay ICANN, this company, uh, the registrars. When you register a domain like uh, bitcoin.com or whatever it is, you pay every year. You have to pay bitcointadpod.com. Check it out. Bitcointadpod.com. You have to pay when you register it, then you have to pay every year. You have to pay extra for HTTPS, uh, you know, and then the FBI can seize the domain. The, the domain is not easily extensible. So the, part of the name coin is that you, you could put anything behind the human readable, excuse me, the human readable name. Once you have a, a public key there, which you would, you would just say, this is my name. My name is whatever, Bitcoin Dad Pod. And then that could be an account everywhere on the internet, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. Uh, that, that name could control your website. It could control an Onion website. So phishing is a big problem with onion websites because no one can read them the urls okay so two questions one so namecoin sounds great why didn't this happen and two ethereum implemented their own sort of namecoin called ens and it turned out that this was being run from the server of the ethereum developer virgil who got in trouble with the u.s government for going to north korea to teach them how to use ethereum to bypass sanctions and i think he got arrested or something Thing. And he did, yeah. And it, and, and basically, uh, ENS was tied to his account, which they couldn't access because it was on like a VPS that he owned. That just seemed really ironic to me. I'm not familiar with the specifics of that, but it does seem as though that wasn't a decentralized protocol if it relied on him. Obviously, if it was fully decentralized, the creator could get hit by a bus and it would not be, the service would not be affected. I think the early Namecoin was way ahead of its time. People were really confused about how it worked and how Bitcoin worked. And I've written on my blog, I wrote a post called Bit Names. I think well, in particular, one thing it didn't do is it did not have a strategy for how to mix the old and new domains. Like we have the ICANN names, like the .com domains, but then Namecoin had like .bit domains. It did not have a good plan for having these coexist, whereas I wrote a good plan uh, and I published it on that, that blog. And it also, Namecoin had no solution to squatting, which I also think I had a kind of plan for. But I... 
those things were pretty bad, but I really just think it was just, it was too new. All of the Bitcoin blockchain technology was just, it was too new and people didn't even get it. When it was being invented, there was no, there was no compelling use case. But, but today there are quite a few. And one in particular is these, these darknet markets have a big phishing problem, apparently, where you think you're going to wherever it is, SilkRoad.com, uh, but it's this complicated onion address and you go there and you deposit money, but it goes to a different, uh, goes to a bad guy who had set up the different URL. So there's no... Right. So it could protect you from phishing. Precisely. There's no way that you can have a brand that has a reputation that has tied to the URL because the onion URLs are strings of gibberish. But with the Namecoin, that would not be an issue. The other thing is, of course, Namecoin, you would, we could replace addresses because you could have BIP47 payment code or something else like a PayNim or whatever behind, behind the scenes in the Namecoin world. And then we wouldn't have to deal with, oh, send me an address, send me a lightning invoice or whatever. You just type the person's name and you'd send the money. So is this going to be a drive chain? I hope so. I certainly hope so. Yeah, I think Namecoin has enormous potential. I think un- it's very unfortunate that it's, uh, it doesn't get more attention because unfortunately, as a result of the history of Bitcoin and scaling war, etc., it has become unfashionable to talk about using Bitcoin to solve problems. Instead, people like they like to have it as like the, uh, the store of value, the dumb rock thing. And I think that has partly contributed to this idea that we don't need to care about Bitcoin solving people's problems. But I think that that is a false idea. I think we should we should always care about that and we should try to use Bitcoin to do lots of cool stuff. Yeah, I think that there is concern about non-monetary use cases. You know, like I think Ethereum is a perfect example of the tension between supposedly it's a utility protocol because Ethereum is the gas that drives a quote-unquote computer that gives you smart contracts and all sorts of stuff. But it's also clearly a speculative asset. And so as the asset goes up in value, the utility functions become more expensive, pricing out the non-monetary use cases and sort of focusing development towards all the speculative use cases. So that's clearly not a development situation that the Bitcoin community thinks is ideal. Well, I think, you know, people are very different. And that's part of the sidechain, part of the sidechain vision, which is that not every, like when you want to buy coffee, that doesn't necessarily need to have super, super strong privacy, super strong decentralization. You know what I mean? Like you can have, you can be a guy who is, you can be George Orwell, right? And when you go home, you work to overthrow the government secretly in your in your closet or whatever. But you also have a regular life where you walk around and you work <laughs> for the government and you buy coffee or whatever. You can just use the large a large block sidechain for those transactions. People are different and transactions are different. And so Ethereum example you bring up is example of that. Some people want this, some people want that. Other people don't want that anywhere near them. They say, get the get crypto kitties <laughs> away from me. I don't want that crowding out my thing. The sidechains let everyone kind of live in harmony with each other uh, to some extent, or to certainly to a million times better extent than we have now, which is that you either have to use altcoins or hard forks or um, or something else. So, or, or just be miserable. Now, Paul, this isn't an interview, but talking with you, you clearly have a broad perspective of what Bitcoin can do. And you have a really interesting proposal for scaling that, given my understanding, seems like a really valid and um, maybe logical next soft fork. But it's taken years and it still doesn't seem like there's a huge amount of talk about merging in BIP 300 and BIP 301 into the next soft fork. So what keeps you on Bitcoin? Why haven't you gone 
into Ethereum or an Ethereum killer chain to implement this grand vision? Well, it's a, that's a very good question. Uh, you know, a lot of them are, um, I think Bitcoin's competitors are not uh, very good, actually. They're very disorganized and they, they, they're getting better all the time. Like I was saying at the beginning of the interview, Ethereum was a big, it was a complete piece of, it was like no good at all. It was very scammy in 2015. And over time through trial and error, it has evolved into something. I think just because it also it was the the competitor. So it attracted anyone who wanted to take more risk, wanted to try to defeat Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin didn't have drive chains, right? Well, yeah, that's that's another thing that people should always keep in mind, which is that, of course, Vitalik Buterin was a Bitcoiner. He, he founded Bitcoin Magazine, which does those big conferences that you like, you know, the Miami Beach Conference. Wait, that I like? That's done by Bitcoin Magazine. Well, I'm just saying that you and the audience, the people in the audience, you know, because it's enormously popular conference. Well, I'm not sure that we liked it. I, I actually went to one of those conferences and I found it incredibly alienating. Some people are frustrated with them. Yeah. Some people are often frustrated with them. And they, they, they try to strike a balance, I think, where they have like the open source stage, which is kind of like the real conference. And then they have like, oh, how do you want Do you want to have Tony Hawk? Nothing against Tony Hawk. I mean, I love Tony Hawk, but he has nothing to do with it. I mean, it's like the real conference is the open source stage. And then 90% is just total crap. A lot of fluff. Yeah, it is weird. And uh, But you see, um, they are in a tough position because you want to grow. It's just a matter of growing the community. So what are you going to do? Like if you, you have an opportunity to have like a senator come to this event that gives us legitimacy, you know, that's helpful. So I think I don't, it's not what I would do per se, but I, I certainly understand the, the logic of the organizers of the conference. Um, but yeah, a lot of people are often frustrated with it. Uh, I think they don't know exactly what to do. I think part of it is because of sidechains that there's no, it's not growing in a lot of user directions, tech directions. It's just, it's just, can you get more people in, which is not the best way to grow. But uh, so the point is, I'm all I was trying to say was that thing, I think Vitalik was like a one third owner of Bitcoin magazine or something like Vitalik was a big Bitcoiner back in the day. All these people were, uh, some of them were always going to be shady weirdos that tried to print their own money. Very tempting. But many of them were not. Many of them were just people who loved technology. And uh, so these people were Bitcoiners. And it's the lack of sidechains that greatly contributed to people leaving the community because we don't have a unified message that just says Bitcoin versus the banks. We Now there's lots of infighting, Bitcoiner versus altcoiner, or even just Bitcoiner versus other Bitcoiner, like another Bitcoin cash and all that other stuff. So so we we have had this problem. The question, why not leave, uh, no, you know, Bitcoin is still number one. Bitcoin is still very organized. Bitcoin has very high standards for the software. Bitcoin has a good long run thing. Like it'd be very easy. There was a, what was it last year? I think like Solana was like very appealing to all these people. Oh, it's another ETH killer, blah, blah, blah. But the problem with um, the problem with Solana is of course, like it was just designed, they just slapped it together and now it's the long run costs uh, will kill it. So there's a kind of like a Lindy effect type of a thing. Uh, the older thing is the better thing. I think the other thing is BIP300, the support has been picking up. Uh, it's true that it's 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 going slow and it's going too slow and I think it's a big risk but uh, you know support is picking up people are the critics have sort of started to become quiet they no longer say the silly things that they used to say quite as much only people like Peter Todd who's like it's basically their job to find the criticism like you know if you found like the holy grail he would be like but do we really want to like live forever in happiness or something maybe he would like find the criticism of anything so I know our poetry might get worse. Yeah, something like that.
that. Like, what what is life without suffering? Or, you know, he would say something weird like that. So it's really just those people. Um, I, I agree that it's a, a problem. I think maybe, you know, I, I could have done a different job of explaining it. I think maybe timing was bad. The history maybe was bad with the scaling war. I mean, I think this might be a new approach. You know, you've tried reason. Clearly, it doesn't work. Now it's time to get down with the kids. <laughs> oh, yeah. Post some podcasts, uh, do some funny dances on TikTok, perhaps. TikTok. Yeah, that's the way. We should have a new BIP for that. Like Amir Taki wrote like BIP 1. We should have like BIP 500, which is like TikTok-based activation, soft fork, like TASF, TikTok-activated soft fork. Proof of Communist Party control is our new consensus mechanism. <laughs> yeah, you just need to make sure that it goes viral uh, with the CCP, and uh, then you're in. Again, another, another episode title, Viral with the CCP. Gosh, you're on fire. Now, it's been a while. Paul, would you be willing to maybe come back as a guest host and describe Hivemind? Because I feel like I need a, at least a week or two to read up on it. Sure, I would be happy to. I think it's it's this is how I originally got into Bitcoin development. I heard about Bitcoin a lot while ago and I thought because of Silk Road, because of Ross Albright, I was like, oh, I get how this will be good with criminals. But then I looked into it more and I was like, it would be just, it would just be good with everyone. It would be the money on the internet. Uh, but then uh, my favorite website, Intrade, in 2012, was closed down and I was like I was inspired by Bitcoin and I was like oh we don't have to have things closed down they can just we can just keep them on forever I'm a huge advocate of this prediction market idea I think it's very 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 important it's it's like way printing press 2.0 by a huge margin like the printing press is, is nothing compared to the prediction market printing press is a little toy uh, and I think that this institution is huge so this is my attempt to put the all the pr prediction market activities um, on the blockchain like on the Bitcoin sidechain, as well as decentralize the Oracle. So it's, it's quite a lot of crazy ideas at, at once, which is its which is its problem. But uh, I got a lot of feedback, a lot of endorsements from people, and we actually built the software in 2015. And if people go to BitcoinHiveMind.com, they can they can download download the uh, the alpha version. And uh, because sidechains were never invented with Bitcoin, I never really got to turn it on. But this is a project that I feel very strongly about. I'm a big prediction market advocate, and I have some uh, some videos up there. Awesome. Well, that will be in the show notes. That's a tease. So I've managed to corner Paul, get him to promise to come back on. And with that, let's get some listener feedback. Remember, you can always get in touch with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. Also consider joining the Community Matrix channel. Links are in the notes. Our first boost comes from Sir Lurksalot, who boosts in 1,000, sorry, 100, 1,010 sats, which is a mega boost. Thank you. Sir looks a lot. I don't know about galaxy sized computers, but in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Deep Thought, a computer, figured out the size of the Earth would be sufficient to determine what the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything actually was. Of course, the question's answer was known 42. There's probably a lesson there about AI design. Being a fan of Douglas Adams' computers and Eastern ideas, it is fun that 42 is 101010 in binary, which is the amount that was boosted in. Yin and yang repeating and towels. Pew pew. Thanks so much, sir. Looks a lot. That's a reference to our last episode, which was, of course, episode 42. Okay, 10,000 sats from Bitcoin Lizard. Is he a real lizard? We don't know. I would encourage anyone who wants to run a, a node and is familiar 
with Linux to ditch the node in a box setup and install the packages yourself on the Linux distro you prefer. You can install new software versions when they are released and avoid breakage from node in a box version upgrades. Uh, yeah, I remember Jameson Lapa was struggling with the node in the box idea. He They tried to sell it with Casa and then they, they said the support, I think, was too much. It was too much to make it feasible. That's a great point. I've been using Umbral for the show nodes uh, lightning boosting integration because it's sort of, you know, node in a box works very easily, but I've been having trouble upgrading. So I'm moving to a more self-managed distribution. I built nodes myself based on just raw Ubuntu before. So I was hesitant to use a node in the box until Chris, my co-host, sort of suggested I give it a try and it was so convenient it made me really lazy. Do I regret it? No. Would I rely on it? No. We also received 3,900 sats from at Marcel. Thanks so much. And then we received 1,000 sats from at Nazuful. Great show. I heard about the pod from Chris mentioning it on AJB show. Keep up the great work. Thanks. DPG, 3,333 sats. Hey, Dad and Chris. Boosting in to understand how people or companies, quote, buy foreign currencies, unquote. I can visualize someone trading stacks of greenbacks for a foreign currency, but I'm not really sure how to visualize digital currency exchanges. Is it really just updating an entry in a bank's database? If it's all digital, why are they independent in the first place? Um, I'm not sure about that question. What are they talking about independent? Can't remember right now in the heat of the moment, but I think we were talking about foreign currency fluctuations. And when you are a company, especially an overseas company, your bank will offer you several types of bank accounts. Some will be denominated in dollars, some in the local currency. And so for the business, you can actually usually just open up the bank's website and you'll have a US dollar balance in one account and a yen balance in the other account. And usually you can sell yen from one account to to buy dollars into the other account and so move funds in between. It's very similar in my experience to just your regular retail online banking. Though some countries like China have restrictions on what you can do with the foreign currency. So in China, for instance, when companies receive US dollar in payment for goods that they're exporting, it goes to a special account. And that account is like a a one-way function. It can only sell dollars into Chinese renminbi. Why are there all these separate banks doing this and not a single bank with a single database? Because actually it is complicated to centralize huge digital systems. And, you know, this piecemeal approach allows different banks to have slightly different flows or treat customers in a slightly different way, depending on the local conditions. And, you know, it's it's worked for 600 years. So why change it? We also got 1,999 sats from Neralp. Thank you. And 1,001 sats from Mug Daddy. My buddy Clarkians got me chugging the Kool-Aid. Can you guys recommend two or three resources for beginners beyond something like the Bitcoin white paper? This would actually be a great question for you, Paul. Just to get involved in Bitcoin? Or learn more, maybe? The best way to learn about Bitcoin is probably to like just download um, wallet software and play. I think, I mean, again, Electrum is, is nice because it will show, just will give you tables of what you have, your addresses and your coins and your transactions and things, which is like a very straightforward thing. I think the best way is to learn by by doing. Depends on what, you know, because you can just get stuff from a faucet or something for free, you get five five bucks or a little bit and, and play around with it. Uh, that's really the best way to learn about how Bitcoin works. Uh, depends on what they want to learn about. Let's see, what do they want to learn about? I would suggest if you'd like to learn generally about how Bitcoin works, then check out Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos. The text is available for free on GitHub, or you can support him by buying a copy. The first couple chapters are a good introduction. And then he dives into some of the technical implementation, which is also really helpful for understanding 
understanding how Bitcoin works. Jameson Lopez, doesn't he have like a, doesn't he like compiled like an enormous list, a categorized list of like everything anyone has ever written about Bitcoin from like uh, economics or whatever. So you know what? I'm going to link. I've done this before. I'm going to link to bit uh, to Jameson's Bitcoin resources and you just click on anything in there and it'll probably be really good. Right. Explore. And if you hate it, then just click back and go to something else. Our last boost is under our limit, but it was a special message for Chris. Remember, I think our limit to read out on the show is a thousand saps, though we read everything. We really appreciate it. At HPC Morgan boosts in and says, kind of annoyed Chris hasn't used my donated server as a node. It's got dual Xeons, man. That being said, I have some older GPUs I might be able to ship in over. A topic that might be worth mentioning is this small market where folks buy up lost wallets from their original owners who forgot the pass key and work on cracking the passphrase. P.S. I started listening due to shout outs from Chris from Lup. Well, thanks so much, HPC Morgan. I can tell you that your dual Xeon server is way too powerful for a Bitcoin node. Maybe Ethereum or Solana wants to use that sucker, but Bitcoin is happy on a pretty small computer. So if he was going to use your server, he'd probably need to put a hypervisor on it, set it up as a virtualization platform and use it for a whole bunch of things, which I think is the plan. So thanks so much for supporting Chris and Linux Unplugged. And then we have an email from an anonymous listener. Uh, So for context, Paul, this is a listener who's been um, concerned about the tornado cash sanctions and potential sanctions for Bitcoiners who have used CoinJoin. Anon writes, thanks for answering my question. I was more concerned about authorities knowing that coins purchased through a KYC exchange went into a CoinJoin. The exchange will know who bought the coins and whether they were CoinJoined. I'm less concerned about spending of those coins, which could be done P2P or, as you say, holding everything until it blows over. Do you have an opinion on using a single cold card with multiple passwords to create a KYC and non-KYC wallet? Is it safe without doxing the non-KYC wallet? So I think that there's no way, if you buy KYC coined, there's no way to hide the fact that you've coin joined them other than to, I don't know, maybe send to an intermediate address and say, hey, look, I spent the coins there. They're gone or something. Yeah, that's what my post deniability is about. Oh, well, why don't you talk about deniability? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I wrote this post a long time. This idea is a million years old, but I wrote a post about it because what I was observing was that actually bullet points had just come out for uh, Monero and for ring signatures, and they were very, very small. But I was like, actually, even these bullet points are the size of like three or four regular Bitcoin transactions. (laughs) So I was like, one of the things I said in that post was, actually, this is a pretty efficient way of getting privacy. You just send the coins to yourself a couple times, and then you just say, I don't have them anymore. I, I spent them. No one can really prove that you are lying. It's not fundamentally possible for anyone to prove that you uh, have not. And so it's funny you mentioned that in particular because I just finished uh, a, fr- and a, a friend of mine uh, or an associate of mine. We, we coded something where it's like a little just drop down GUI menu in our, we have a modified Bitcoin core node that we like to put all kinds of funny little tools in. And we made one uh, very recently. So it's in the it's going to be in the next DriveNet uh, testnet software. And it's just a thing with a drop down and you just click a button and it will just start sending your money to yourself at random times with random amounts. Of course, it costs fees and it makes your, you have more UTXO stuff. So you'll have to pay more when you spend, but at the current low fee rates basically costs you nothing. And uh, it will just keep sending them until it has sent each, you have sent to yourself, like at least like whatever it is, three times, it will just do that at random times. And so, so we have a little tool that will do that without you having to worry about the UTXO management, which of course is torture for humans, but very easy for the computer to keep track of. So that's funny that you mentioned that, but that's the plan for when it, the coins come in on private. 
is you just say, I spent them on drugs. I, I bought a lot of drugs. Uh, I spent them on steak dinners. Yeah, exactly. You spent them on, uh, yeah, and right, enriched uranium and assassination. <laughs> Now, the other part of that question was about using a single cold card to create multiple wallets. You can totally do that because the cold card is really a signing device. It's not really a wallet. So you use the cold card to sign transactions. But if you're careful about creating two different private keys and two different watch-only software wallets that correspond to those private keys, I think you're very unlikely to confuse them unless you've, you get confused with which wallet you're using in your software. So as long as you label everything and kind of document it for yourself, I don't see a problem with using a single cold card to safeguard multiple private keys unless, you know, you're concerned about losing the cold card, which is a whole nother question. Well, that's kind of the end of our show. We made it. We made it. Yeah. Paul, that was so awesome. I <laughs> really appreciate you. Okay. Hey, for... thanks for having me. Before you go, I was thinking, you know, often you're just like, oh, uh, you want to give the listeners a handout or something? But instead of doing that, why don't you tell listeners, like just tell them the whole process quickly, how to just like get set up running the drive chain testnet software, because we have a technical crowd. Someone will probably try it. I'll follow your instructions too. I was supposed to do it for this week. I didn't. And then next time we talk, we'll be running drive chain. Oh, well, that's cool. We have, if you go to drivechain.info, I have links at the top that are down Download software and learn on YouTube. I think it's like, you know, drivechain.info slash release or something. Let's say I got a I got a laptop, I just download Bitcoin Core, I enable Testnet, I download the drive chain software, which will be in the notes, and then I'm ready to go. You don't need Bitcoin Core. It's a separate, it's a completely separate testnet. So it's as if it were an altcoin, really. But it's like so it's good if you have Bitcoin Core for one reason, which is that I don't even know if I want to explain it all, but basically you can start to sync you can copy a directory of an already synchronized Bitcoin Core node and sort of you won't have to download anything again. But we also have a, we also have a, like a fast pruned it's just 8 gigabytes it's uh, to, to have a full node of the sidechain uh, of the DriveNet software your sidechain is actually based on the current Bitcoin UTXO set yeah we sometimes we go back and forth so sometimes it's completely fresh and other times it's just a better test if we uh, so yeah it's, it's funny because it's either if it's fresh it's as if it's an altcoin and if it's with the current UTXO set then it is as if it's a hard fork but it's only for testing so no one panic but but uh, it's a, that's the test net. So it's not uh, a real coin. Okay. Well, but it is uh, something you can download and play with and we'll give you free coins and we will let you do whatever you like with those. And you can go into uh, our Telegram group, uh, t.me slash DC Insiders, and then you can download the software and you can play with it and you can send to the Zcash sidechain and you can you can do mining, you can do whatever you like. You can win the new version. And there's a GUI. There is, yeah. There's a GUI on this, right? There is. Okay. So download it in a computer with a graphical interface. Sounds good. Yeah. So if you just go to drivechain.info and click on the top, you can get all the releases. We have we have Mac, we have Windows for most. So even not only do we have a, not only do we have a GUI, but we have uh, a lot of them. We have Mac versions. So we have side chains. We got main chains. We got everything. Well, that has been a fantastic show. Thank you so much, Paul, for co-hosting and for presenting your work and for your fantastic digressions. Oh, hey, thanks for having me. This has been. The Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Sunday, October 2nd, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here for the first time with, say, like Paul. See you next time. Mm. Oh, yes. You're here with Paul Stortz. Thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun. See you next time. <laughs>